RPN is not responsible for the views, actions, statements, or opinions of its guests, advertisers, or even its viewers. The information contained in this program is not to be confused with medical or legal advice. An appearance on this platform is not necessarily an endorsement. But as always, we encourage you to do your own research. Enjoy the show. Good evening, everyone. You're listening to Red Pill 78. As always, my name is Zach Payne, the Corruption Detector, and this is another edition of Red Pill News for Friday Night Livestream. Geo, I don't know if you're still here, but yeah, I do realize I'm in the same time slot now as I have the storm. But let me remind you, and everyone here, I've had this time slot for... Five to six years now, so I think Eye of the Storm is in my time slot. But that's neither here nor there. It's the Wild West. This is the internet. This is a podcast, and you may be listening at a time other than when we are live. And that's okay. That's the beauty of modern-day content. I sincerely hope, though, no matter where you're listening, that you are subscribed and that you hit the like button. And if you're over there with my good friends at Pilled. .net, P-I-L-L-E-D.net, a.k.a. The Foxhole, that you also hit the red pill. Johnny Q, 07, indeed. Good to see you, my friend. Thank you so much to everybody. Hey, you're here. Good. Glad to hear you, Gio. Thanks for being here. All right, you guys. Tonight, we are going to be talking about the secret Illuminati bloodline. You know the bloodlines of the Illuminati. My good friend Fritz Springmeier has been here on the program talking about it on numerous occasions, and we talk about it in so many different ways, but we are going deep. We're digging deep hundreds of years into the past centuries. Be right back. Chances are pretty good that if you can hear my voice right now, you are probably feeling uncertain about your finances, and that is not a good feeling. But the thing is, you're not alone. I think a lot of us are. And this is one of the reasons why Noble Gold Investments is here to help. You can hear it from people who watch this program, people that they've already helped get their finances in shape, saying things like the Noble Gold crew walked me through everything. There was no stress or with their help, I can finally sleep easy at night. And now this month, Noble Gold Investments is handing out these free five ounce solid silver America the Beautiful coins with every qualifying IRA. Right now, you can invest in gold and silver with Noble Gold Investments by visiting their link at my special website. It's called redpill78gold.com. The link is in the description of this video. Just click it, redpill78gold.com. It'll take you straight to Noble Gold Investments because they're the only gold company I trust. And when you support my sponsors, you support this channel. All right. Good evening. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. If you are listening live, say hello in the chat. Let me know where you're from. And please join me in welcoming our guest for this evening, one Duppy. Duppy, how are you tonight, sir? Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. <clears throat> I also wanted to give a big shout out to Anka Vanka, also from Pilled.net, for letting me know that you had dived so deep into this very fascinating topic. 
Uh, since you are an anonymous researcher, uh, before we get into the topic, I, I want to have the audience become acquainted with you uh, just a little bit, if we could. Uh, so first of all, W, what's, what's your background? Uh, what can you tell us about uh, uh, your life outside of the Internet? Oh, my Fritz. God. Duppy, Duppy, hold on. Everybody is saying that you didn't have audio. You guys, I just reset his connection. Can Duppy, can you say something again? And let's make oh. sure that everybody can hear you. OK, can you hear me now? Can you guys Yeah, go ahead and just speak for a little bit longer because there's going to be a a, 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 a right, delay I'm trying to try to keep speaking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay, okay, they can hear you now. They can hear, okay, okay. Okay. So let's just start over. We're going to do right, a sorry. hard reset. Okay, Duppy, welcome <laughs> to the program. Tell me a little bit about who you are outside of your life researching here on the internet. What did you do that, pro okay. that, that got you to this point? So professionally, I'm actually a, a geoscientist, and I worked in the oil industry for a little over 30 years and didn't quite get to have the retirement that I wanted because of what they have done to the oil industry in this country. So all of a sudden, I found myself with a lot of time on my hands, um, discovered the Q stuff in pretty late compared to most people. Uh, it was like November of 2018 and dove in head first thinking, wow, this is going to be entertaining. And then I kind of went, whoa, there's more to this than just entertaining. So in my spare time, I thought I would try to contribute in some way. Um, and that ended up being a historical uh, area. I'm not a historian. I had very little history background. So, but I was curious about uh, the infamous P in the Q drops. I didn't think that the prevailing Pazer theory was as well-founded as it could be. I, I just let me say that uh, uh, outright. I, I think you're right. I think that a lot of people took that and ran with it. And, you know, there's uh, uh, there's there's certain people who uh, they have a vested interest in uh, having that be the truth. But I, I've always felt that the foundations were a little bit shaky. Yes, sir. I agree completely. That's what yeah. got me, you know, interested in it was, um, could we do better? Right. Uh, obviously, it's a it's a massive undertaking, but it's interesting as hell. And I would uh, imagine it's probably pretty difficult to do because I mean, you're going so far back in history, and you're dealing with primary sources. I mean, physical sources. Uh, much of this stuff that you were able to find, I mean, had it been digitized or did you have to actually, <clears throat> pardon me, go out into the real world and seek this stuff out? Um, no, not really. Uh, actually, I don't think this exercise could have been done 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. What I have relied on is the multitude of public uh, genealogical databases okay. that are out there. Um, that, there's that's probably about a ha half a dozen. Some are better than others. You have to be pretty careful and cross-check from one of those databases to another to make sure that, you know, people aren't just making stuff up. Sure. And, and then, you know, there's other documentation, too, out there that from various sources, everything from, you know, classical renditions of Roman history to 
recent findings on pieces of history that you all cross that you know I'm cross checking with and seeing if the genealogies tell a story and they actually tell a much bigger story than I ever imagined. Well, uh, before we delve into what you found outside of the pay source, can you tell us if you were able to determine anything of note surrounding the Pacer family or? Well, my my critique of the Pacer story, uh, there's a couple of things that, that bothered me. Um, number one, you know, part of that story is that Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette's kids were imprisoned in the Bastille during the French Revolution. Right. And that at least the older one, Louis XVII, escaped and was escorted via England and King George's blessing to America. I could find no documentation other than on conspiracy theory websites that Louis XVII survived the Bastille. That's not a historically accepted thing. Uh, so that's one point. Another one was if he had to go to King George III for help, who's the big dog in that relationship? Right. It's not Louis Um Also, if you go to the genealogy websites, yes, indeed, there was a Daniel Paysor, but there's actually information on his parents. And, of course, the, the Paysor story that we're familiar with they basically said, oh, but he was adopted. Well, there's nothing that supports that either. Okay. So, and, and the last thing is that, okay, so if this was the French nobility and they left France relatively penniless, you're talking about, okay, yeah, they may have invested in railroads and stuff, but that's building up a fortune over the last 200 years. Right. There are much, much older families in Europe than that that have a thousand years of of being uh, extremely wealthy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so there were there were those things made me a little bit uncomfortable, and it was it was almost too simple. So, I got interested in the idea that there, and I'll show some of this, but. There's a pretty well-known video out there on the internet for quite a long time by a guy named Sean Ross, H-R-O-S-S. Um, it's called The Pharaoh Show. And he goes around Switzerland photographing or filming all of these monuments that have Egyptian symbolism in Switzerland of all places. It's- and he's making a point that, no, the controllers are, are pharaonic. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. What if P equals pharaoh? Ah, <laughs> that's the that's the road that I went down. <laughs> well, it's an excellent theory, and and you're right. I mean, it's not just in Switzerland, but it's been noted that uh, there are Egyptian obelisks all around the world at various uh, right. c- centers of power. I think that they've got one in London. There's definitely one in Washington D.C. Now that's the 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 Washington Monument, uh, but it's clearly based upon that uh, classical symbol that the Egyptians used and, and did for thousands of years. Yeah, and they got one in in London. They yeah. got one in Rome. They got one in the Vatican. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's very uh, face forward in your face saying these who are who we are, but we just don't know who they are. <laughs> right. So, the, yeah, that all played into this, too. 
Plus, what I'm going to show, the first part of what I got to show tonight is symbology, kind of okay. like what we're talking about now. Um, if you remember, there's a key drop that mentions Y, the symbol Y, or the letter Y. I don't think anybody figured out what that was. Um, I think I did find it, though. Okay. And it plays into this same pharaonic track that that you know we're just talking about now. So, So not only was... I apparently able to find some answers with regards to P, but also some other stuff that was in the Q drops that, that is related, but I don't know if people realize that they might actually be related. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, um, you know, in in terms of the stuff that was in there, I mean, people were kind of, uh, hyper-focused on modern times and how it might relate to what's actually happening now. But, I, I can totally see it going back as far as that, because obviously if we're talking about um, an invisible power source, I mean, something that's been embedded within society and culture for as long as this has, uh, it would certainly make sense. Yeah, and actually where I'm heading, and I'm still working on the earliest stuff, but this goes back to the beginnings of civilization. Mm-hmm. Sargon of Akkad, for crying out loud. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Wild. 2300 BC. So, yeah, and it's pretty frightening when you think about the implication, if this is right, because that means that these people have been steering human civilization since the very beginning mm-hmm. for their own ends. So, are, yeah, it's, are it's unsettling. Even, are they even people, though? Well, <laughs> I don't go that far. I know people <laughs> want to. Uh, I can tell you this. Where my research ends up is in an area of northeast Syria, southeast Turkey. Okay. That seems to be where these people came from, as far as I can tell. Do you know what else is in that area? Mm, uh, I don't know. Oh, oh, go back, Lutepe? And Mount Ararat. <laughs> okay, Wild. <laughs> yeah, so there, there's a bit going to be a bit of a collision course with the Old Testament, wow. I think. So, yeah, it, it's a pretty, it's far more fascinating than I ever thought, and it is, I think, more disturbing. I, I actually, there's some stuff I'm going to show that I found. Was it December of 2021 that literally frightened me? And I had to go walk outside for half a day to clear my head. And that was when I decided I needed to start making noise publicly about this because it, it did it did frighten me. Wow. Um, I'm going to show what that is. So I can't you know, imagine be the judge. I can't imagine what would be so significant. <laughs> I'm fascinated. Uh, let, let me ask before we start into the presentation, let me ask you, I mean, the uh, you know, I, I think that when people imagine a, uh, a a secret society behind the scenes one thing that comes to mind uh is this idea of the elongated skull people which of course uh, uh Tutankhamun would be one of and I think Nefertiti perhaps as well those are just from e- Egyptian history that I imagine but I mean the elongated skulls are found uh in various pace- places throughout human history and I'm just wondering if uh that has played into your research at all No that that kind of goes back to the whole alien thing which I think is fascinating but that's just 
This is a massively deep rabbit hole, and I can only dig so far. So I, I'll let people take it where I leave off and run with it further back in history if they can. Um, but that, again, that's just too too big for me to to bite off. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, I, I guess I didn't. I don't think about it as aliens. I think about it as perhaps. A, a human subspecies or perhaps, you know, uh, like a, a, a branch of the Nephilim uh, from when they interbred with with uh, human women. Um, OK, so but if that didn't take. I, I saw you'd like this. I saw a, a, a YouTube video. I think it was. Oh, who was it? Somebody's pretty well known talking their interpretation of the word Nephilim. This is a scholar type person mm-hmm. was that it. it you know, because we kind of suffer from mistranslations and sure. a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And his take on it was that it really just might mean sons of God, mm-hmm. which, okay, that's acceptable to most people. They've heard that. But his take on it was that that was a term that was used to describe priests. Okay. So let that one bake your noodle for a while. All right. All right. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. Yeah. Sweet. Well, w- w- what do you have for us? Where do we Where do we begin? Where do we pick up all right. this chapter in history? All right. So this is normally about 12 hours worth of material, and <laughs> I have had to chop it up pretty hard. Um, I've still kept a lot of slides, but I'm going to have to kind of dance through them pretty quickly to be able to get get the points across in time. Um, but actually I wanted to, to throw a shout out to a couple of people, um, filter dog. I really appreciate that he got this material to your attention, Zach. So we have a chance to reach some new people. Also, of course, to Anka Vanka for be, for being such a supportive and assisting person the last two years. She's been great. All right. So. Let's see. The first thing I wanted to show. Let me get the share screen going. Yeah, I was going to say, let's was, make sure that you've got the ability here. I'm just going to make you a co-host so that uh, there shouldn't be any problems. All right. Coming. It's coming. No problem. Uh, let me just give a shout out. Say thank you to Porpoiseful over on Pilled.net. Thank you for dropping that cookie. I appreciate it. <clears throat> All right, we uh, we are a go. We have your screen being shared on screen. You can see it. It's a painting, right? Yes, yes, sir. Have, have you seen that painting before? I can't say specifically, no. I mean, it's reminiscent of many that I have seen, but this one is not ringing a bell. Okay, so uh, earlier today, Zach randomly chose a coat of arms that he thought looked cool mm-hmm. to represent this this show. And at the bottom of that coat of arms, you can see it on his uh, his page. There's a, a a Latin logo on it that says "Et in Arcadia Ego," and that Latin inscription is on a, this very famous painting. These guys are pointing on it on this tomb. Mm. Well, there's actually been a number of digs on. You know, amongst the the patriot community, on you know, what are the secret messages in this mysterious painting? It's a painting by Nicholas Poussin in 1637, I think, and it's called Arcadian Shepherds. Okay. Now, Arcadia is an ancient area in Greece. 
nobody's really figured it out. They've tried to throw golden ratio stuff on it, and it's, it's interesting. But I don't know if anything definitive came out of it. But it was just so cool that Zach just pulled this out of thin air today, <laughs> and it actually plays a role in what I'm going to show today because there's a second version of this painting that Poussin painted, and the family at the end of all of this owns that second version of this painting. They own the original of it. Oh, wow. Isn't okay. that crazy? That is crazy, yeah. <laughs> I thought you'd get a kick out of that. Certainly. All right, so I'm going to bring up the PowerPoint stuff. All right. Can you see it? Yes, sir. Okay, so when I normally give this talk, and remember, it's, it's much, much longer than tonight's is going to be. I call it higher loyalty because it's an apropos statement um, considering who the hell does the deep state work for? And I chose this particular picture because part of the symbology, unfortunately, which I can't get into much tonight, is with regards to higher places or high places. You remember that from one of the key drops, at least one of the key drop talks about what's the meaning of high places. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That plays into it. Um, this is an example of a castle on a high place. Um, and it goes probably goes back to Egypt, the Egyptian creation myth of all things. Mm. Remember, we still got this Egyptian thing going on. So that's why I chose this as sort of my uh, uh, header image to encapsulate the show. So where have we heard a higher <laughs> loyalty before? Yes. Jim Comey's book, of course. Notice on the cover of that book, there are not one, not two, but three Ys. We also have a Q drop that, that links a higher loyalty to why, whatever that might be. Well, when you hear the phrase higher loyalty, who who is Comey really loyal to? Higher than what? Is it higher than what's normally expected of a public servant or higher than the Constitution even? Mm -hmm. What is it? And I actually spotted this about a year ago. Um, this is a picture that was taken at the World Cup in Dubai last year, just a random photo. It was in the Daily Mail. And these guys are parading around in gold-covered deer costumes. Does anybody remember a Q-drop that had a gold-colored deer costume? Yes, that uh, Rothschild party, definitely. That's right. Yep. Before I show you that, um, one more thing about the Y symbolism. It's out there all around us. We just don't readily recognize it. There's a band that I actually happen to like. <laughs> Me <that was> too. <laughs> popular in the early 2000s called the Yeah, Yeah, Yes. Yep. There's YYY staring you in the face. But if you look a little deeper, and I just like them because they had a unique sound. Zach could probably say yep. the same thing. Absolutely. Well, their first hit song was called Maps. Where have we heard that term? You're right. Wow. Um, that The song of theirs that I like the most is called Why Control. Mm -hmm. That's another good one. 
Well, they, they claim that, oh, it's about male dominant, male dominant, i.e. the Y chromosome relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you listen to the lyrics, it's nothing like that at all. Plus, as an added bonus, their videos for these songs are atrocious. They're a lot of kid abuse and stuff like that. Um, I wouldn't recommend watching them. They're pretty disturbing. So, yeah, this group is pretty creepy. But I just wanted to show this is an example of YYY symbolism in our culture. All right, so here we go to the cue drops that address Y and gold, the concept of gold. And remember, symbolism will be their downfall. So here's the famous picture of Guy de Rothschild. I think he was from the French branch of the family mm-hmm. at, at their infamous party with his wife wearing a deer head. Um, I think a lot of people interpreted that that deer head might represent Y, which I think is probably correct, but they weren't able to go any further with it, really. I've also seen another photo <laughs> from this party of her wearing that that deer head where you get a better idea from the lighting that it's actually spray-painted gold. Mm-hmm. So Y and gold are definitely linked in this. You want to know something funny, too? Um, I was – just looking at the 4chan archives of these posts uh, for November 22nd and November 23rd earlier today, like totally randomly outside of any plans for this show. So, uh, yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot. I've had a lot of those moments like Mm. you just described where things come in out of the blue and all of a sudden make sense. Yeah, yeah. And also let me say thank you to S18 over on Rumble who says, Red Pill, you are better than Eye of the Storm every day. LOL. Sorry, just starting the live. (laughs) I sincerely appreciate that. Eye of the Storm uh, is an incredible show, so I have a lot to to live up to. But Duppy, please continue. Okay, so there are some other cue drops besides that picture. Obviously, keep that picture in mind. Mm -hmm. And Q, of course, emphasizes gold down here at the bottom Mm -hmm. in the text part. But there's actually some some, um, perhaps overlooked drops that specifically talk about gold. Ancient Egyptians considered gold the skin of the gods, specifically the sun god Ra, and often used it to craft objects of spiritual significance. So here's a link to Egypt mm-hmm. directly in a cue drop, but yep. also gold is a, a a material that doesn't tarnish. It doesn't react with the environment. That's why it's considered to be eternal. You don't have to, you know, polish it or anything. It has its own luster that never fades because it doesn't react with anything. So it's a symbol of immortality. Gold is like an immortal metal. And that's why it's associated with gods. And remember, we've probably talked many times that these people, you know, especially Klaus and his his ilk, think of themselves as gods. Absolutely. I mean, there's a famous Soros <clears throat> quote about that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what does this have to do with Egypt? <laughs> you know, and, and, it, and I've also, uh, you know, the, the picture is a little bit low res, but I, I've I've always thought that the gentleman in the photo almost looks like he's got a, a light dusting of gold paint on his skin himself. Now, that could just simply be uh, the, the lighting or, you know, yellowing in the um, the print. But, yeah, I mean, it, it very possibly he could have something on himself as well. 
possible. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I've never been able to tell either. No. Um, also, so anyway, uh, one, real quick, B, B1 Car says, well, now they ruined Yellowstone for us all. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even seen the new season of Yellowstone. I kind of uh, I, 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 I grew disenfranchised, I guess. Holy, you know what? <laughs> I never even thought of this type of connection with that word Yellowstone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a geologist, so I know why it was named Yellowstone. But right. <laughs> there's Here's another way of looking at it. But they ruin everything for us, Tuppy. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Okay, so, so so again, here's these other drops talking about why and gold together. So there's definitely a connection there. And we know, of course, in ancient Egypt, King Tut and his uh, contemporaries were often uh, rendered in gold, probably to denote their godhood. Remember, pharaohs were considered gods on earth. That is... A very important point, I think, in the symbolism and how these people think. Also, a quick note, if you guys remember Q's rendering of the pyramid in ASCII format. Oh, yes. Yeah. Forward slash underscore backslash. Yeah. I'm gonna, I, think, I think I found there might be something significant about that besides just ASCII limitations okay. on how to render a pyramid. Okay, here's something probably most people don't know. If you were to go to Balmoral Castle today, you would see this pyramid. Yes, you would. Yeah. This is this is an Egyptian pyramid on the Queen's estate in Scotland, dedicated dedicated by Queen Victoria to her deceased husband Prince Albert. They call it a cairn, uh, which well, is disingenuous because <laughs> yeah. it's, it's more than just a pile of rocks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, that kind of There's 14 of them? Are they of varying no, levels the, of sophistication? Well, from from what I've seen, the other ones are more traditional things okay. that we would think of as cairns, you know, a pile of yeah. rocks. Yeah. This one's different. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But who'd have thought there'd be a pyramid like that in Scotland of all places, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, so I can kind of skip over this one. This is sort of uh the the, uh, some snaps from that Pharaoh show video I talked about where Sean Ross is showing all of the Egyptian stuff. But what I thought was interesting was he shows a whole bunch of obelisks in a Swiss graveyard, and they all are uh, erected on Jewish people. And we've been taught mm. that they don't like Egyptians. So what's up with that? No, that's right. They were slaves to the Egyptians. Yeah. So that'll that'll get you thinking a little bit. Uh, All right, yeah, so, definitely. So a little bit about the concept of Pharaoh. And mm -hmm. before I forget, I, I have to mention something because I should have put it on this slide. The interesting thing is that the word Pharaoh did not exist in Egypt until right around the reign of Ramses the second. So that was a couple of the dynasties in, wasn't it? It was 18 <laughs> dynasties <Yeah>. in. <laughs> Actually, Wait. sorry, 19 dynasties. 19, then. okay, okay. But what it really means is great house. And this is house like in the family house, like we hear of in Europe, the house of bourbon, the right. house of, so, you know, these families. Mm -hmm. So I find it very interesting that it came in kind of late to the Egyptian vernacular. Did they have you know, th a phrase or a word that they used prior to that? I think they just use something like king. Okay, okay. Something as simple as that. 
So I haven't really dug into this, but that concept of great house coming in late plays into what I'm currently <clears throat> working on, okay. which is the Egyptian stuff. Now, you got to remember from genealogy, you have to start somewhere and work backwards. It's very hard to work forwards. Mm -hmm. So as far as my research goes, I'm kind of at the, at nearing the end, but it's also the hardest part with the Egyptian stuff. I'll show a little bit on that. Now, Pharaoh in the Egyptian religious uh, concept is considered to be the embodiment of the god Horus in life. And then when he dies, he is considered to go to Osiris or become Osiris in death. Osiris was the god of life and the afterlife until in a very famous Egyptian myth, he was killed by his brother Set, who's sort of an evil god or a chaotic god. Mm -hmm. And so Osiris was uh, his only purpose after that. He couldn't be the god of life anymore because he was dead. So he became the god of the afterlife. So then the question is, well, who took his place? Mm -hmm. Was it Set? I'll get into that a little bit more later. The important part on this slide was that the pharaoh is considered to be Horus. Horus was the son of Osiris and Isis. He Horus was the embodiment, or the pharaoh was the embodiment of the god Horus on earth. Okay. The son of the gods. This concept of son of God or son of the gods is very, very common. It is. It is. Ancient, <laughs> ancient relig pagan religions. Yeah. Another concept uh, with the pharaoh that's important in this is the pharaoh's main responsibility was maintaining universal order. Mm -hmm. Where have we heard the word order a lot lately? Yeah. Just keep, keep that in mind. All right, so if you look at a lot of these ancient civilizations, they all have very prominent symbolism that's reminiscent of Horus. Horus is a falcon, mm -hmm. a raptor. Well, the Persians used it. They had a royal falcon on their banner. The ancient Greeks had the eagle of Zeus. That's mm -hmm. a raptor, very similar to a falcon. Mm -hmm. Even the Romans had it yep. on top of their standards. The golden eagle. And it goes beyond that. The Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the Roman Empire of Charlemagne. So we kind of think of it as the Holy Roman Empire, but it really didn't have that name until much later. When Charlemagne was the first Holy Roman Emperor, it was actually called the Roman Empire. So it was a, a, a rejuvenation of the Roman Empire, at least in their minds. And what did they use? A raptor of some sort. An eagle, I think they call it. The Byzantine Empire was the remnant of the Roman Empire that existed in the east, i.e. Constantinople, mm -hmm. Turkey. Uh, present day, uh, crap, what's the name of that city? Uh, forget, whatever. Istanbul. Istanbul, there you go, thank Is you. Istanbul was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul. Yeah. Do you know that song? <laughs> I haven't heard that song, oh my but God, I should remember that. It's make it easier. It's, it's a classic, and I will play it before we're done tonight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So they used the double-headed eagle. 
And at first I was kind of mystified by where the hell did that come from? Why the double head? And I thought, well, maybe it's because they like to play both sides and they're trolling us, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's very but true. But it does go back much, much earlier than that. The Hittites used the double-headed eagle as one of their god-type figures all the way back to 1600 BC. That's what this photo is. This is from Hattusa, the recently excavated capital of the Hittite Empire. But it continued on. The Holy Roman Empire used it uh, prior to you know the 12th century. Or after the 12th century, they used the double-headed eagle, and it still exists everywhere today. Yeah, Russia, Albania, Montenegro, Mexico doesn't have the double-headed one, but what do they have? An eagle and a serpent. Mm-hmm. We're stuck with it too. Sometimes I wish Ben Franklin would have won, and we had the turkey as our. <laughs> If this is right. <laughs> what a timeline that would be if the yeah. turkey. Oh, my gosh. I've thought about that many times, too. <laughs> and, and of course, the Masons used the double-headed eagle, too. This is their symbol for either the 32nd or the 33rd degree, double-headed yeah. eagle. Yeah, so I, it's everywhere. The Germans, too. <laughs> yeah. Is, is it a it's representation literally. of Horus? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it like Sean Ross says, the pharaohs are everywhere? Is it another one of their symbols? Well, it, guess it's, what? It's quite interesting <laughs> to imagine that there there might be this continuity between the rulers of every nation. Like to give us the illusion of sovereignty and these separate and unaffiliated leaders running each of these nations might actually have a level of interconnectedness that uh, people it's, don't realize. I found it was far more than I ever imagined. I found links to China going back to 600 AD where these people probably bred into the Chinese royal line. Oh, oh wow. And guess, and guess what? And the one that they bred into was the Tang dynasty. They were fle- – it was Persians who had already bred into the Byzantine bloodlines, Persians fleeing the Muslims that went to China. And were part of the Tang royal court. Hmm. And guess what the name of the Tang royal family was? What? Li, L-I. How many times have we seen that name in the digs on the Chinese dragon families? Absolutely. Yes, yes. Uh, Real quick, uh, Duppy, Coyote Patriot over – yes, Von Hitch. They might be giants. Uh, Coyote Patriot over on Rumble says, Zach, I saw you post this one earlier today, and I had to see it. Very fascinating information. Great guest. Thanks, bro. And um, also just want to remind you guys, you have to be on pilled.net if you want to go ahead and check out – Duppy's work after tonight, and believe me, there are many, 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 many hours of uh, incredible content. Duppy, please continue. Okay. Oh, and Belushi said, "Good to see you, buddy." He says it's called the High Table. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, this is yes. the High Table. That's yep. for sure. Okay, so uh, it's even with us today, and we don't even realize it. This Falcon thing. Does this symbol on the right look familiar? Mm. Yes, it does. Everybody says, oh, it's a trident, right? Yeah. Well, on the right or on the left side, that's what a diving falcon looks like. Wow. Yeah. Very similar. Very. So, you know, maybe Soros is putting their stamp on Ukraine, too, that kind of thing. 
All right. So this next slide, this one's a really deep one, um, but it's important. And this goes back to Egyptian and Canaanite religion. Um, normally, this slide takes a lot of time, so I'm going to have to go through it kind of quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so please bear with me. On the left-hand side is one of the oldest Egyptian artifacts there is. It's called the Narmer Palette. And it's a representation of the very first pharaoh, uh, first you know, first dynasty that united uh, the north and the south of Egypt. His name was Narmer. This thing's called the Narmer Palette. And notice the hat he's wearing and the stance and what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's basically smiting an enemy. And so that stance and the fact that he's wielding a mace became a very prominent um, icon of authoritative power within Egypt. And I would argue it also became a iconic of authoritative power throughout the rest of the ancient world as well, as these people may have bred into the families of these other civilizations. Jeppe, I I can't help but notice that the other two people in this tablet have standard depictions of their heads, and Narmer has what could be perceived as an elongated head. <laughs> kind of. Well, that yeah. is the that is the white crown of Upper Egypt. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll show you that a little bit later. Um, kind of looks like a, a proto. Pope's hat as well. It, it, yeah, there's a lot of that going on here. Um, but it, it looks like a bowling pin. It's very distinctive. Yeah. Um, that is the crown of Upper Egypt, which is Southern Egypt, because you got to remember the way they they delineated Upper and Lower Egypt was by elevation. Okay. The higher elevation source of the Nile is to the south, so that's Upper Egypt. Yes. Northern Egypt is the Delta, and there is a different crown for that. On the reverse of this, which I don't have a picture of, the reverse of this Narmer palette, I seem to recall that he's wearing the other crown of uh, Lower Egypt, the Delta. So it's signifying that he unified the two uh, areas, upper and lower. Now, that is very old. That goes back to 3100 BC. It's one of the oldest artifacts in Egypt. I've actually got a photo of the other side. You want to if, show it? Yeah. If um, okay. And, yeah, yeah. Do I need to stop sharing for you to do that? Yeah. You go ahead and stop sharing, and I will. Um, I will right. make this possible for everybody to see. So let's share right here. Okay. Oops. Oh man. It's well. It's working for you, but it's not working I, for everybody yeah, else. Hold on. Just yeah. A there it is. Yeah. Let me um. Let me add it to the screen so that the people can see it. Okay, and screen capture, new, and we'll go, I think this is it. Yes, there you go. Okay, and then let me just adjust the size. Okay, and uh, yeah, if you want to tell us what you see here. Yeah, yeah, so, so, so the, the one, one on the right is the reverse. Mm-hmm. The one on the left is the one I showed. And you can see Narmer is in the upper uh, left. He's the biggest figure 
on it, yeah. the biggest person on that part of the thing. And, and you, you can see he's wearing, wearing the crown of Lower Egypt. It's, it's a funny-looking thing. Oh, it's got like a it has that curly cue. <laughs> yeah, nobody really knows what that curly cue is to this day, although the most likely explanation is that it's the proboscis of the honeybee, because the honeybee is a symbol of Lower Egypt. And remember Napoleon mm-hmm. and his bees? Yeah, that people think that that might somehow be connected. Okay. All right, we have to stop, and I need to get back on it because we're yeah, yeah, short of time. No, no problem, no problem. So let me stop sharing. Okay. Stop. So Upper Egypt was the older of the two civilizations. Okay, so you can and go that's where Narmer came from. Okay. So he conquered Lower Egypt. Okay, Okay. so I'm going to start sharing. Yeah, there you go. Wait a second. They're saying that, oh, you had an echo because I was sharing the screen. Okay, guys, that should be done now. Sorry about that. (laughs) Okay. I know know now that I can't share my screen if I have a guest on. Okay. Okay, so so this next thing I'm going to talk about is pretty important, and I think people will recognize it immediately. Um. The word Moloch, we've mm-hmm. heard that a lot. Yep. Everybody thinks he must be some kind of a god that these people worship. In the ancient West Semitic languages, uh, remember Moloch's supposed to be a Canaanite god, mm-hmm. so West Semitic applies. Um, they didn't have vowels in those languages. It was all consonants. So the consonant set for Moloch is MLK. And that literally translates to to rule or king. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a god. It could just be the king. Mm -hmm. And given that Egypt, for very long periods of time, controlled Canaan, especially in the times of like Ramses and Tutankhamun and the big names that we're familiar with, when they were the most powerful, they controlled all of Canaan. So... Um, it's very possible that Moloch could be, rather than being some weird, obscure god, it could be a reference to the king or the ruler. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also debated amongst archaeologists and people like that as to what the word Roloch, Moloch really means. A lot of people, professional people, think that it might actually be just a kind of sacrifice. So a Moloch sacrifice, could that be a sacrifice to the king or the ruler rather than it being some weird god that nobody knows anything about? Sure. Here's another connection. The Egyptian word for owl is also M-L-K. Okay. The word itself is actually Mulak or Moloch. Also... Most depictions of an owl, you can see where you might be able to get a Y out of it. Okay. You got the two horns and then down, you know, straight down below the eyes. Mm-hmm. So you could possibly get a Y. So again, these these Egyptian connections. So um, when you go to the Canaanite pantheon, we've all heard of Baal and everybody wonders what Baal was. We're all told it was the Canaanite storm god. 
Well, the most famous representation of Baal is this little figurine that comes from Ugarit, about 1200 BC. What does that look like to you? Looks Something like else on this side. It looks like Narmer. <laughs> yeah. It looks like the pharaoh in the classic smiting pose. Now, what's really incredible about that is Narmer is in 3100 BC. This figurine is from 2000 years later. Yeah. Same pose. But if you look at, you know, Egyptian iconography, that was a very common pose all throughout Egyptian history for the pharaoh demonstrating his power over others. I'll skip over this part really quick, but um, there's also a connection to the phoenix. Um, now, the phoenix is associated with Phoenicians. But it also plays a role in the Egyptian creation myth. It's very much like a falcon, except it has a fiery aura to it. Mm -hmm. We know the story that it rejuvenates itself periodically. Well, what if the pharaoh, in order to maintain order, has to burn the world or feels he has to burn the world down and remake it? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um. So I think there's a connection there to where the phoenix and the owl might be representations of the pharaoh, who also may be Baal. Okay. So remember them parading the Arch of Baal around a few years ago? I do, yeah. Maybe they have a particular pharaoh, i.e. the Antichrist or a Nimrod figure. Mm -hmm. coming out of their bloodlines that is going to play a role in the near future. Sure. This sure. is the topic that kind of scared me because I didn't think I'd get into that. I wanted to stay away from it, but I couldn't help it. It just led that way. You know, and of course, I mean, the uh, um, uh, Moloch and the owl, uh, I mean, that brings to mind um, the Bohemian Grove. And That's right. The, and you know, I just mentioned this on the show yesterday, but when Kevin McCarthy visited Lahaina recently where there was a fire, he wore his Bohemian Grove membership polo. It had the oh, – it had the owl symbol, which it like not just any owl, but the Bohemian Grove's official owl insignia. And of, I'm sure everybody remembers the inside uh, videos from Bohemian Grove where they had the uh, uh, cremation of care where they symbolically sacrificed a person on uh, on a burning pyre with the owl standing directly that's behind. Right. Little too, that's, a little odd that Kevin McCarthy would wear that to a, a, a scene of a disastrous fire. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's yeah. That's kind of frightening. It is, yeah. But anyway, yeah, remember also that this figure, the pharaoh, the owl, the phoenix, Baal, whatever you want to call him, I think he's very similar to the Nimrod figure that, that you know, a, a tyrannical world ruler. And this all ties into that. It's, it's, I didn't want it to go down this path, but it did. Wild. Okay, so the next couple of slides I talk about Phoenicia. Phoenicia, as you know, was, was a part of Canaan. They were a very uh, powerful trading empire. I have to skip past a lot of the detail, though, because of time. Mm -hmm. But I think that they were much more tied into Egypt than people think. Okay. Um, there are indications that the main cities 
go if you go went back far enough, uh, there are statements by you know people like Strabo and all these ancient historian types that these were Egyptian outposts. That's how they got started, and um, the most valuable commodity they had were the cedars of Lebanon, which grew in the mountains right mm-hmm. outside these cities. Egypt had no wood that was big enough to do much with. You know, they just had scrub trees. It's a desert. Mm -hmm. So um, they needed, Egypt needed cedar wood pretty badly. And of course, the Phoenicians built their maritime empire, of which maritime law actually came from the Phoenicians originally. Okay. um, With the cedars of Lebanon, a very important tree to these ancient civilizations, especially Egypt and Canaan. All right, so a little bit on a little bit more on Phoenicia. I won't go over most of the bullet points other than to point out again, um, there's a connection that I found between these Lebanese cedars and what was called the tree of life. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily talking about the tree of life in the Bible, but you could make that connection. But the tree of life and iconography of these ancient civilizations, it's all over the place. I'll show one example, but I've got a whole section on it in in my regular shows. But that tree was exceedingly important uh, in the ancient world. And I suspect that's where the term evergreen comes from. You all know who that is. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. And it's also present in, you know, present day iconography this is the lebanese flag they still honor the uh uh the lebanon cedar on their flag it was important to their history but there's also a certain university on the west coast that uses something very similar yes i don't know if you recognize that i have seen it before yeah that that is stanford university yep which is deeply tied to the intelligence community oh you don't know how much that pains me <laughs> yep <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, there's there's more here on some characteristics of Phoenicia, you know, the color purple, things like that. But it's too much detail, unfortunately, for tonight. Okay. I just want to emphasize the the connections to Egypt. This is a sarcophagus from uh, from Phoenicia that has Phoenician writing on it. I don't need to really blow it up, but it's obviously an Egyptian style sarcophagus. So yes, it is. The connections, I think we've we've been told that they were separate civilizations. I question that. I think the the Phoenicians were for very long periods of time um, under the control of the Egyptian pharaohs. Um, I'm going to skip these slides. This is sort of. Uh, uh, an argument of how the Phoenicians, if you go back early enough, may have been responsible for originally settling the entirety of the Mediterranean before the Greek civilizations even existed, and they may have seeded the Greek civilizations. It's in their, it's in the Greek myths that a lot of the early players in the Greek myths were actually Phoenicians. Well, there's there's also evidence to suggest that Phoenicians may have settled in European countries and even as far as North America. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I do talk about that in other shows. Wow. It's actually well accepted now that the Phoenicians were mining tin mm-hmm. in England 
as early as 1000 BC. That's actually accepted now. And and copper in northern Michigan as well. That's an interesting theory. Um, Mm. There's... There's a guy that built a Phoenician ship around 2015 mm-hmm. um, to see if it was possible. There's a legend that one of the pharaohs contracted the Phoenicians to sail around Africa in like 500 BC. This guy wanted to see if it was possible, so he built a Phoenician boat in 2015 to the specs that we know a Phoenician boat of that time should have been. He successfully he, – he started off in the Red Sea and successfully circumnavigated the Horn of Africa. Wow. And when he went out into the Atlantic, he got blown all the way to the Caribbean before he could return to the Mediterranean. Wow. So it's entirely possible that they could have gone there. Another, You'll love this one because I haven't heard anybody talk about this one, but I found a reference in 2010. There was a pile of shells found in the Yucatan, big, huge pile of millions of shells, same kind of shells that were used to make the purple dye in the Mediterranean by the (laughs) Phoenicians. That's what these little shell symbols are here, the places where they had these big piles of shells that they found archaeologically, indicating that they were manufacturing the precious purple dye. Wow. Well, they found one in the Yucatan in Mexico, and they've dated it to about 1,000 B.C. So it's entirely possible. I would love to spend more time on that. But again, that's way too much for me to handle at this point. And then I have a little note here. I suspect that the destruction of the Alexandria Library, mm-hmm. probably the most important thing that was lost, if it was lost, of course, people think it might be in the Vatican, was a more complete history of the Phoenicians. They still remain a pretty big enig- enigma historically. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So I'm going to skip down. All right. The reason I wanted to spend time on the Phoenicians was to get to the Phoenician alphabet. The Phoenician alphabet was the first true um, consonant-based alphabet that all of our current alphabets descend from. And it came about in about 1100 BC. It was developed by the Phoenicians from an earlier script called the Prono-Sinaitic. They found uh, these these glyphs in some copper mines in the Sinai that were presumably being run by the Egyptians. And there were Canaanites that were slaves working those mines, and they wrote some stuff on the walls there. And that was interpreted to be a early version of what became the Phoenician alphabet. And they're pretty confident that that proto-Sinaitic script was derived from a Egyptian hieroglyphs. So we're seeing the development of all of our alphabets originally coming from Egyptian hieroglyphs, essentially. Wild. This picture here is an an example from 840 BC from a stella that was found in the Middle East called the Misha Stella. And it's very legible Phoenician script. So that's what it looked like. Um, In their alphabet, it reads right to left, like most of those ancient Semitic languages did. Mm -hmm. 
Um, they had 22 consonants, no vowels. And an interesting aspect of that is that with no vowels, that means that you kind of, if you're reading something, you need to kind of know through context or somebody telling you how to properly fill in the vowels to know what the correct intended word was. So that means you can hide messages in these things, which is a really interesting aspect. There are some people out there that have actually gone and tried to reinterpret even the Bible using concepts like that. And they've come up with some really interesting things regarding quote unquote hidden rulers in the Bible. Hmm. Oh, wow. Well, and here's the money shot. The, the, the Phoenician alphabet is also old Hebrew. This is where the Hebrew alphabet came from. Hmm. It got changed to the characters that we're familiar with today a bit later during the Babylon exile about, you know, 550 BC. So prior to that, the Hebrews were using this language. And I even went back and watched the Ten Commandments specifically to see when Moses gets the tablets. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, in the movie, good old Cecil B. DeMille actually rendered uh, the Ten Commandments in this old Hebrew or Phoenician alphabet oh, wow. in that movie. <clears throat> That's great. Um, Duppy, before you continue on to the next slide, we have to take a break for the second half of the show. You guys okay. stick around. We've got a lot more to discuss. <laughs> Bitcoin ETF is all the rage right now, and that's because a major financial player is just now resubmitting their application for a Bitcoin ETF. So as a result, investors are thinking this is just over the horizon. Mainstream adoption is right around the corner. Now, add to that, lawmakers recently voted to set guidelines on just when and how crypto firms should register with either the Commodities Futures Trading Commission or the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, while all of this is good news, an ETF only gives you exposure to crypto, not direct ownership. The whole point of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin is to directly own an asset with a finite supply that is outside of any government influence. And my digital money can help you do that. With my digital money, you own your crypto, whether you invest in a crypto IRA or with a standard trading account. Now, remember, it's important to diversify your portfolio. And when it comes to a crypto investment, direct ownership is of the utmost importance. So don't get caught up in the excitement the media is trying to spin because nothing beats owning your own crypto and nothing beats investing in crypto through my digital money. Not only are you able to invest with them using a crypto IRA, but also a standard trading account, and it's all in the same platform. You also have the assurance that your assets are going to be put into a trust. That means that no matter what happens to my digital money, your crypto is always safe. So if you're ready to invest in cryptocurrency, do so with MyDigitalMoney.com. Once again, that's MyDigitalMoney.com. The link is in the description box below. And I should also tell you they have excellent U.S.-based customer service. So feel free to give them a call with any questions you might have at 833-636-2008. Invest with MyDigitalMoney.com today. And when you support my sponsors, you support this channel. You know, a lot of people don't understand that digestive issues are frequently caused by a toxin that's present in virtually all of the, quote, healthy foods scientists have been telling us to eat with their fraudulent food pyramid for the longest time. 
And according to Dr. Gundry, who is a world-renowned cardiologist and best-selling author, it's these toxins that cause the issues so many people face. Millions of people nationwide are living in agony every single day. And the warning signs include weight gain, fatigue, digestive discomfort, stiff and achy joints, and even skin problems. And you see, Dr. Gundry explains these side effects are often mistaken for the normal signs of aging because they usually develop over a matter of years. You see, this is progressive. In some cases, it even takes decades. And because we've been lied to, you probably have no idea that the damage to your digestive system is likely caused by these health foods, and it's far from normal. Now, the good news is you can fix this yourself from the comfort of your own home. It's really very simple. You just have to know which foods are actually healthy and which foods contain this hidden toxin. So you can find out for yourself by clicking the link in the description below, gutcleanseprotocol.com forward slash Zach. Once again, that's gutcleanseprotocol.com forward slash Z-A-K. Because after years of research, Dr. Gundry has decided to release an informative video to the public, totally free and uninterrupted, showcasing exactly which foods you need to avoid. So once again, click the link in the description below to visit gutcleanseprotocol.com forward slash Zach and find that free video. You're going to thank me for it because it's totally free. And when you support my sponsors, you support this. All right. Thank you very much for sticking around. We are back with Duppy continuing our conversation about the secret bloodline. And Duppy, before we continue on, let me just uh, go through a couple of these thank yous over here on the foxhole because there was actually a question for you in there. Uh, Let me say thank you to Forest Friend who said this is fascinating. Thank you. Morningflower17 says lurking and much love Duppy. Smot Poker, thank you very much for the gold pills. Cynthia says, please play the Tiny Tunes version of Istanbul, not Constantinople. Um, I actually, I have a version pulled up. It's the They Might Be Giants version, and I'm pretty certain that Tiny Tunes used the uh, They Might Be Giants version. Um, Enigmatoid, thank you for one, two, three cookies. Ohio Kimmy, thank you as well. Sean Joe, appreciate it. Filter Dog One says, I just got in. I'm going to need to catch the first part later. You better go back because uh, it is comprehensive. Belushi, good to see you. Quick, put these on for truth. Thank you for the shades. Cyberspeed uh, says, one question for Duppy. Was it Inspiring Philosophy's YouTube channel that was talking about Nephilim as priests? Oh, man. I. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember. Okay, no it wasn't problem. that. It was just a couple of days ago, so it's possible if that's a relatively recent video. Okay, well, so I'll I'll check it out myself after the show. Filter Dog One says, "Who was superior, Egypt or Phoenicians?" Well, if the Egyptians were seeded from Phoenicians, I I don't know. If other the, way, other way around. Other way around. Okay, so Egyptians seeded Phoenicians. Well, what what's your opinion on that? Uh neither i i think that the uh venetians were powerful in their own right but i think they answered for a lot of their history they were perhaps intertwined and and intermarried in answering to the pharaoh okay uh and then thank you sean joe and purposeful and average joe patriot dropping some shades thank you he says future so bright you gotta wear shades great discussion symbolism will be their downfall and speaking of symbolism we are up to the letter y which it looks like is the sixth letter of the phoenician alphabet oh you cheated man (laughs) it's right in front of me i can't i know (laughs) so yeah it's really interesting that there was 
do you remember when people were talking about the the symbolism on the monster drink can? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, well, I was, that, I was that drinking is... a monster when that came out and people saw it on my show and they were like, why are you putting Satan on the air? And yeah. I was like, yeah, well, <laughs> I already paid for him. That is three bobs from modern Hebrew, mm-hmm. which is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Yep. And people got close to the Y. They just didn't go back earlier than the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. What was the Proto-Hebrew? Well, it was Phoenician. If you go to the Phoenician, that same letter Vav is Y. Okay. Is a symbol like Y. So, yeah, I don't – they got – it's funny because people got so close but didn't quite get there. All right, so the, the Vav has some specific meanings. It is actually, remember I said that, that these early alphabets came from Egyptian hieroglyphs. Mm-hmm. This letter, Vav or Y, um, came from the symbolism of the mace. That's oh. why I spent all that time talking about the mace as a symbol of ruling authority, right? Certainly, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what he was drawing back and about to strike right. that other man with. That's right. And it's all over pharaonic symbolism, that same exact stance and smiting the enemy. That was very powerful symbolism to them. Mm-hmm. And this Y came from that particular hieroglyph. There's also another a little bit more modern meaning in the Hebrew of that letter Vav, that it's symbolic of a hook. And what they mean by a hook is something that hooks heaven and earth together it's very spiritual uh reading of this thing and that ties into a lot of the other symbolism that i can't show in this show that has to do with the egyptian creation myth uh the primordial mound the ben ben stone stuff like that it's a fascinating topic because it it plays into elitism Mm -hmm. and these people thinking that they're gods i just don't have time tonight to go into it okay but if you would like to have me back, I would love to talk about it. I, I think appreciating detail. I think we're going to have to for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, I kind of set. I knew there's no way we we're going to do this in two hours, so I set this PowerPoint up in two pieces. The first thirty slides are on the symbolism. Mm-hmm. The second thirty slides are on the the bloodlines, and the I before we get out of here, I will show the one image that links those two together and it'll start to make sense. Okay. All right. So some quick slides on the mace as ruling authority. (laughs) Stanley Kubrick comes into this a couple of times, believe it or not. You're probably not surprised, but (laughs) I was. Um, The very first opening scene in 2001 when the apes are influenced by the monolith, and what do they do? They invent the first weapon, yep. and, and they use it to subjugate their fellow man, if you want to call him that. Mm-hmm. So the mace was pretty much the first weapon, right? There it is, a scene from that movie, a bludgeoning weapon. It's the first first weapon of subjugation. Here's a much later uh, version from Egypt of the pharaoh this is seti the first from the 19th dynasty in this case smiting his his enemies or subjects that these guys you know used physical threats against their own people there's some other 
maces that uh, have been interpreted from inscriptions on them to be symbolic of subjugating their own people. I have a slide on that in the bigger show, but I chose to not show that for this one. But again, this is that same pose, mace up in the in the right hand, right leg, right leg back, left leg forward, grabbing the hair or head of the enemy and smiting them. That symbol of authority was everywhere in Egypt and also other ancient cultures, as I will show you. Here's an example of the mace um, throughout history. Here's a ball from Ugarit looking very much like the pharaoh, except in this case he has curly side locks of hair. Oh, that's like the proboscis on the other side of that uh, glyph. It's just lowered. I, I got lost on that. <laughs> Care to explain? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, the the other side of the um, that that he, the glyph of the first oh, Egyptian oh, pharaoh. Oh. Yeah, it's, a, it, a little bit. Well, these yeah. are supposed to be horns, whereas that other thing, everybody thinks it's a honeybee proboscis. So okay. I don't know if I've made that connection. It's possible you could go there. I just sure. haven't. Well, you know, I, mean, anyway, I, was just, I was just thinking about the, the evolution of these things over time. I mean, things change position. They might change a little bit of shape, but they're reminiscent. Yeah, and there's a whole other element of astrotheology, you know, the age of Taurus, the age of Aries, the age of Pisces that – Mm-hmm. does play into this stuff but again that's too much for this show mm-hmm. so you could argue that the horns might be oh it's something about the age of taurus you know that kind of thing um so anyway this is ball from canaan uh being represented just like the pharaoh ball's supposed to be a god but remember the pharaoh was a god on earth so mm-hmm. I, i'm posing the question what if ball is another name for the pharaoh because the word Baal translates literally, and I forgot to mention this on the earlier slide, from the Canaanite as lord or master. So anybody who's your ruler, the king, would be your lord or master, right? Mm-hmm. And where do we get the uh, English house of what? Lords. lords? <laughs> you know, this stuff is permeates throughout all of history. Mm-hmm. Oh, and another thing that I needed to mention, I just found this recently. Um. The old French word for king, I'm talking like Middle Ages and Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. The old French word for king was Roy, R-O-I. And, and that permeated even into English culture after the Normans, who were partly French, partly Viking, mm-hmm. invaded England. And they took over. They spoke French. And they probably called the king Roy because... If you look back through history, there are a number of princes named Fitzroy mm-hmm. in England. Fitz meaning son of, yep. so a prince being a son of the king. Well, now here's here's the thing that that blew my mind. The word Roy in Hebrew means shepherd. Ooh, okay, yeah. <laughs> wow. Now that that goes really deep. Yeah, probably won't get into that too much, but. I'll show a little bit on it in the show if we can get there. Okay. All right. So the mace is still used and it has always been used as a symbol of authority. Mm-hmm. Kings and, and gods or demigods. Here's here's the Hungarian crown jewels from the 10th century with a mace. 
Here's uh, a Hindu goddess, Vishnu, holding a mace. Mm -hmm. Here's an Assyrian king from 8-something BC. I forget which king it was. doesn't really matter. A lot of them held maces in their iconography. You can see the mace down here. Yep. Not quite the same poses, but still holding a mace as a symbol of imperial power that's still with us today. Um, in fact... I, in my PowerPoint version of this, not the PDF I'm showing, this is an animated GIF. This is the scene from the Fellowship of the Ring where Sargon, Sargon, um, Sauron <laughs> is fighting the elves, right? Mm -hmm. What is he wielding? Yep. A big ass mace. <laughs> so again, there it is. <laughs> and we still use those maces today. Uh, this is a ceremonial mace in the upper right from... The Parliament of Australia, it's always there. Same thing in England. England has a ceremonial mace that's symbolic. Uh, it has to be on the table for Parliament to be in session. Uh, here's Queen Elizabeth analyzing a couple of her jeweled maces in her collection. But probably more significant to us, how many times have we talked about Nancy Pelosi's pen? <laughs> It's the mace. It's certainly of is. imperial power. And that's what the real one looks like. But, you know, her, her pen is symbolic. All right. I got to go through this slide really quickly. This one I've never shown before because I just did it this week. Um, another possible. It, remember, the, the why came from the Egyptian mace. But why does it look different? Why did they open up the top of it? Well, the Y might also be symbolic of the Nile. Oh, yeah, the Delta. The Delta. And then there's a male and female aspect to this. It's kind of gross, so hold on to your hat. <laughs> but I was wondering, why did they choose red and white for the, the colors of the two kingdoms in Egypt? Because, you know, thinking like a geologist, well, none of the rocks up there are red. The Nile Delta's green. Why would they choose red up there? Likewise, maybe you could say, oh, maybe there's some rocks like gypsum up in the, you know, down to the south that are white. But somebody, again, another one of these mystery videos, I can't remember where I saw it, mentioned that it might have to do with male and female discharge colors i was actually thinking that yeah yeah, yeah. i mean and the, i mean what more fundamental uh you know yeah. anatomically a symbol of uh, fertility but that's right the blood of the the menstrual cycle combined with the seed of man that's right yeah and so you can see that geometrically it kind of makes sense that this might be the Human vaginal parts I was that just would be associated say. with red, <laughs> yes. the delta. Well, and then also, I mean, internally, like the uh, the, the uterus and fallopian tubes leading to the vaginal yeah, canal. That's right. I don't know if they were cutting people open and looking at that stuff. Maybe they saw it in mummies. But well, yeah, yeah they they definitely, I mean, did. I don't know if they considered them post mortems, but I mean, they certainly opened people up and and removed organs. Yeah. So, and and that ties into the crowns. Because when the two kingdoms are unified, the red and the white crown, the white crown fits inside of the red crown. Okay. Again, fertility symbol, yep. right? This is what it looks like right here. The two combined crowns. When the kingdoms are unified, it's a 
It's a sexual fertility thing. Yep. Also, the reason that I thought the red and white thing might be important to look into, Vikings and Phoenicians are always represented with red and white sails. Yes, they are. So if the Phoenicians could have made it to England, I don't have a problem thinking that they could have made it to Denmark and Sweden as well. No, right? and, and there, there's continuity in the design of their ships as well. That's that's right. I know people have talked about that quite a lot. Yeah. Also, really quickly, why is the English flag, St. George's Cross, red and white? Mm-hmm. And then I go into some stuff about the East India Company and even our own first flag with the red and white and blue mm-hmm. symbolism. Blue was the other crown, the war crown of Egypt. So you can see red, white, and blue all mm. represented in the crowns of Egypt. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So I'll, I'll give that one a rest for now. You can think about that. We can talk about it later. <laughs> okay, so here's one of the weirdest things I did. Remember I talked about Hugh's representation of the pyramid and in ASCII text? Yes. Well, once I got to say this. I got to say this. <laughs> uh, Doug Fat says, that's where Mike Lindell gets his cotton for Giza dream sheets. I'm just <laughs> saying, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. Oh, my God. It's all oh, connected. Dear. It's all connected. <laughs> Oh, yeah, man. it's all connected. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Please continue. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Okay, so when I mentioned before about the 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 pyramid as Q represented, you know, he's talking about the sides taking out the Saudis and how that might be one side down and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. For some reason, one day I woke up and I was like, why is there no top on that pyramid? It yeah. could just be because of the ASCII limitations of trying to make a pyramid with ASCII character. Uh, but but, for some, but some, he, he could have moved those just a little bit closer together. I mean, the, the kerning is really the one that's separating it. Well, yeah. And so what I did, I still can't explain why I did this. I swear to God, Zach, there's been times where some of the stuff that's hit me out of the blue, I can't explain it. Remember, mm-hmm. I'm a rock guy. I, yep. don't, I don't do this for a living. So I turned the Y upside down and put it on top of the pyramid mm-hmm. just as a thought experiment. And what that led to was, okay, we've all seen people speculating that um, that the pyramids were energy stations of some kind. Yep. And you see these renderings of like these beams going up. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, it kind of looks like that. Hmm. There's there's also a famous picture of, in, uh, of a, a, a still standing uh, pyramid in Mexico that actually somebody got a picture and there actually was an energy beam. Uh, that that was protruding from the top of it. I haven't seen that. I will find I have, it for before tonight. <laughs> I have to confess, I haven't been a big fan of the pyramids as energy stations mm-hmm. hypothesis. I heard a what I thought was more interesting theory very recently. Um, there's a guy who's looking into whether they could have been actual chemical engineering facilities. Uh, manufacturing things like ammonia, which would have been very useful as fertilizer. Yeah, and this is the this is the kind of thing that, say, an ancient, a pre-Egyptian, ancient Ice Age civilization might have brought to the table by the time of the Egyptians by building the pyramids, mm-hmm. something like that. So. 
But I went off on a different tangent with this because the name of the capstone on a pyramid is called one of about four or five different things. Most obvious one is called a pyramidion, the capstone, the little tiny pyramid at the top. And we know that people have talked about it being on the top of obelisks and somehow being symbolic there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also called a Benben stone. That was the actual Egyptian name for it was a Benben stone. The Benben stone goes back to what I mentioned before, the Egyptian creation myth, when the seas of chaos were some god cre- decided to create the universe. He had to part the seas of chaos and create a primordial mound of earth for the god to come stand on and create everything else from. That's kind of how the Egyptian creation myth works. It's actually very similar to some of the language in Genesis. Um, but anyway, that primordial mound that came out of the waters of chaos was called the Benben stone. So hmm. that was another name for it. It was also called the Betalus, which is very similar to the Hebrew word Betel or Bethel, meaning house of God. Mm-hmm. So that ties into the story of Jacob's <clears throat> ladder. Remember, Jacob rested his head on the pillow. Mm-hmm which was a stone, probably the Ben-Ben stone, this symbolic primordial mound of creation. And so then this upper part of the Y, which, you know, might be an energy beam or something, that looked, that reminded me of Jacob's ladder. So you have Jacob's ladder, Jacob's pillow in this one stone or this one symbol. Um, Also, we know that the Ben Ben stone or pyramidian is where traditionally on the back of a dollar bill, that's where the all seeing eye is represented. So that's the seat of power. So somehow that's tied together this into the pyramid structure, this primordial creation, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, here's another thing in the Q drops that I think other people missed. Uh, there's a drop 142 where they're talking about the supporting sides of the pyramid, the Saudis perhaps being taken out. Well, there's a drop of how did Soros replace family Y? Mm -hmm. And I think people probably correctly interpreted this as he correct, he, he replaced the Rockefellers Mm -hmm. as part of the supporting network for the I or the, the Ben Ben stone or the pyramidian for the ultra elites, the people who think they are gods. And remember, the Y is a symbol of rulership. But what I think people overlooked was in this one particular drop, Q uses a small case Y instead of the capital Y. Mm -hmm. And so I interpret that as when he's referring about these, the Rockefellers or whatever in this context, that the, the lowercase y means the supporting families rather than 
the ultimate family at the top, which is capital Y. Right. Does that make sense? Uh, no, absolutely. Yes. And that, that's and, I noticed that myself. Yeah. And, and that's where I differ from Fritz Springmeier mm-hmm. on one account, because he talks about the 13th fan, the 13 families. He insinuates that the Merovingians might be the ultimate family, but he doesn't go into too much detail other than relating a little snippet of the Pazer story related mm-hmm. to it. But I've, I can tell you, I found through all the genealogy stuff that it's all one big family. And a lot of the families like the Rockefellers, the Morgans, you know, the, there's numerous different lists of the 13 families. Mm-hmm. It's a totally arbitrary number, in my opinion. Sure, sure. They're all part of the support network, but they are related, but per- peripherally. They've well, all and- inbred. Yeah, that they're was all just part of the say, club. We we know that they're obsessed with the bloodlines and maintaining some level of purity, but they're always interbreeding with each other. That's right. Yeah, and 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 that is symbolized in the family tree, the or the tree of life that I alluded to. But anyway, the point being that this small case Y is the supporting families rather than the ones at the top. Mm-hmm. And then I just sort of did the pyramid as it would look under this scenario, but we're all familiar with that. So I can skip it. <laughs> sure. Sure. A uh, brief note about the old guard. Why Be, uh, the old guard? We've heard that term, the old guard. That's probably the supporting family. So small case. Why mm-hmm. a perfect example from history is the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read the descriptions of them, and this is just from Wikipedia, they sound very shockingly like the roles or role play of our current day Republican and Democrat parties. The Pharisees <laughs> being the Democrats and the Sadducees being the Republicans. Um, this shit's been going on forever. Yeah. <laughs> the Uniparty was always there, mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. least to 2000 years ago. Yeah. If there's only two directions you can go, it makes it quite easy to control you no matter what. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the good news is Jesus fought against them both. Yep. He fought against the system. He knew what was going on, probably. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the one slide I've kept from the huge section I have on the symbolism of the Ben-Ben stone and the tree of life. Um, it's a huge topic. It's very interesting, I think. I'll try to give as best I can a little bit of an overview of it. This is a rendering of an actual carving that most people probably seen mm-hmm. of the Assyrian tree of life. Mm-hmm. This is from the kingdom of Assyria, roughly 800 BC, although it's, it, it's rendered in all kinds of iconography throughout all of those civilizations going even back further than that. I actually found one. From Sargon of Akkad, that that looks like a Christmas tree. Frighteningly mm. enough, there's they could be trolling us with the Christmas tree. They that, might be. Yeah. That's really troubling. <laughs> but anyway, what's interesting about this Assyrian one is, do those branches look realistic to you? Uh, I mean, I mean, it's not like a natural depiction of how a tree would grow. No, no, not at all. They've no. got. Nonsensical branches. It's it's but very, it's very reminiscent of the the Hebrew tree of life. Yeah, yeah. Except even the Hebrew tree of life, the branches do kind of make sense. This mm-hmm. one doesn't. But this one does make sense in the concept of inbreeding. 
Okay. That kind of a, a tree yes. of life. Yes, it does. Because yeah. these would be like the the lowercase y cousin families around the outside. And then the big capital Y would be the core families at the top of the pyramid marrying their cousins. A lot of times I found where they married their aunts and things like that. Mm-hmm. This this inbreeding stuff goes all the way back to the pharaohs at least as a way to consolidate power. These pharaonic families. That would and make it sense. looks like they spread and I found instances in the genealogies that they spread out to these other civilizations like the Assyrians, like the Persians, yada, 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 all the way down through history. Okay. So, yeah. So not just families, but I mean, that that would be a, a, a microscopic rendition. We're talking macroscopic because we're going from individual right. family bloodlines to the bloodlines that rule civilizations. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's called infiltration. Yes. You say? <laughs> yep. I certainly would. So um, there's this – There's when I talked about the Benben stone earlier, there's separate iconography of the Benben stone out there, even on ancient coins. Um, this is a coin from the Seleucid Empire. This was in Syria immediately following Alexander the Great. So they bred into these families as well. And on their coins, they rendered the Benben stone. That's what this symbol, this thing that he's sitting on is. And notice it's got this cross hatching on it. Mm -hmm. That is a complete mystery. This is an actual uh, reconstruction of the actual Benben stone or Betalus that existed at the Oracle of Delphi in Greece just prior to Alexander the Great. Okay. And it's got these weird crosshatch on it, and nobody knows what that is. Yeah. It almost looks, uh, I mean, it almost looks like seeds. Or a net of some kind. Yeah. Some people say they look like seashells or whatever. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I was working on that and the Tree of Life kind of at the same time, and I started noticing Almost all of the renderings that I find of the Tree of Life have the same shape as the Benben stone, a conical, rounded shape, almost artificially defined. And again, in another show where I can go deeper, I can show other pictures of ancient depictions of this thing, and it always has that rounded shape. Well, what if you took their family tree, the tree of life, and rotated it around the vertical axis. It would look just like this. Mm-hmm. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah. So in a way, it's like they're claiming this primordial man, the seed house of the gods, the with their family tree. They're marking their territory. So I threw that idea out at uh, an author who I think is brilliant. His name is Ralph Ellis. I don't know if you've heard about I, him. but I'm definitely familiar with Ralph Ellison, yeah. Um, he's, he, he puzzles over that in all of the podcasts he does. So I, I still don't know what this means. And I said, hey, what about this? <laughs> and unfortunately, his response, you know, he didn't know who I was or anything. So 
Unfortunately, his response was merely, oh, you should check out my Facebook page. <laughs> so Join I would love group. to have a I would love to have a beer with that guy someday, but who knows? So anyway, that's kind of my working hypothesis that these guys through this symbolism depicted in many coins. You know, it's almost like the pine cone, too, which is, you know, it ob- is obviously is the uh, the seed of. Uh, the conifers, cypress, pine trees, whatever it might be. Cedars of Lebanon. Yeah, remember? cedars. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have a slide on that too in the bigger show. Okay. So, yeah, it all, you kind of see these things all, even though they're like all over the place, they kind of fit together. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to, well, all right, I'll go over this slide. This is a conceptual. Gnostic kind of interpretation of the primordial mound myth and how these guys might think of it now. Mm-hmm. So you have the spiritual realm, yeah, Y, which might be set. Um, I won't go into that in too much detail, but um, that has to do with my interpretation of the black sun when Set killed Osiris. He changed the whole pagan trinity to one of anti-life instead of life but that's a really deep subject and here's the primordial mound the sea of chaos that it arose from the upside down y representing the top of the pyramid these families perhaps represented by the phoenix the phoenix has to maintain order which might unfortunately involved scrubbing the world now and then uh the bronze age collapse of 1200 bc might be an example of that um but the disturbing part of this or i guess it's kind of interesting too remember this key drop where it says the nazi order mm-hmm. and nwo n does not refer to new mm-hmm. well, everybody thought from the context that oh well it's nazi world order yeah But they never can say Nazi world order. Mm -mm. Well, the sea of chaos, which they might view as the sea of humanity, especially when humanity gets too big for its britches, as far as they're concerned. The goddess of the sea of chaos was called Nu, (laughs) N-U, in ancient Egypt. So I wouldn't be surprised. Now, you can argue with me all you want. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they're comfortable saying new world order because they're talking about bringing order to the sea of chaotic humanity. Yes. And you world order. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that, that, that one I've dropped on a number of people, but people cling to that Nazi thing pretty hard. <laughs> so. Well, you know, I, I've always been one who believes that uh, – that you, you you can divine multiple interpretations from things, and I, I think that that is directly relevant to the drops themselves because uh, there is no fewer than, I don't know, five different audiences that these posts might be directed at, uh, not just necessarily for public consumption. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think that tracks. So also by throwing the oh. two Ys together, you get something – the upside down and the right side up. You As get above, something so that below. comes close to, yeah, exactly. <laughs> something close to the Freemason and the Star of David. 
uh, algorithm Q also says watch the water, <laughs> which yeah. also also would track. <laughs> yeah, I would interpret that as watch your ass because that's us. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, also, another thing I kind of skipped over. Remember those first two early slides? There were three Y's in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeahs, and um, a higher loyalty, James Comey. Yep. Three Y's. It's the sixth letter. Yes, it is. What does that spell out? Six, 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 six. six, six. <laughs> yep. So I'm interpreting that as all tied in with this Nimrod character, the Pharaoh, the Phoenix, Ball. It's all the same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we get into some actual bloodline stuff. Um, so we've finished the first half of this, which is the symbology. So I'll go as far as I can. I know we're going to run out of time. This yeah, we too much. We, I, I hope gotta, you'll allow me to to finish this. Soon oh, I absolutely. So I, no, forget. I I absolutely. We as soon as we're done tonight, Duppy and I will schedule part two, and uh, we'll we'll have him back in uh, in short order. But yes, please. We've got about twenty minutes left. Okay. So normally this slide can take an hour. <laughs> um, what what I've done is. I found the deer head. Well, actually, I'll skip forward. Let's see. All right. So in looking for symbolism, mm-hmm. and I showed you this earlier, Zach. Yes. Um, I started thinking, well, where are we going to find this why that would give us some pointers as to who these people present day might be? And the obvious thing was coat of arms. Now, I knew nothing about coats of arms. They look kind of cool, but I don't know what they mean. Mm -hmm. Um, And I started just poking around, looking at a bunch of them. And it didn't take long until I found this one. Three Staring you right in the face. Mm -hmm. Why, why, why? As a deer head, no less. Mm -hmm. Six, six, six. Mm -hmm. On a black background. Now, Mm -hmm. if you've looked even at a few coats of arms. They're usually very complicated and very colorful, mm-hmm. right? Yep. This wasn't like any of them. I still to this day haven't found one like this. And so I identified what family this represents. Uh, did a little research on the other symbolism involved in this particular coat of arms. It's fairly simple, but there's two things. Um the snake on the top is very unusual. I have yet oh, yeah. to see that on another one. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's going to ring a bell. Yep. Um, but also their motto. I'll probably have to talk about this in more detail next week. Other than this was my starting point, this family, for looking at the bloodlines. So I started from present day and worked backwards. You kind of have to. Mm-hmm. Um, because it funnels that way. If you start early, like say, oh, I want to look at Julius Caesar and who's descended from him, you you run into thousands of branches very quickly. Right. Well, where do you go to try to make sense of it? So you have to work backwards. Um, so this is sort of the end result. For presenting it in a historical context, it's actually easier, I think, to work forwards so i'm starting at the end in the deepest part of time and i'll just go over this quickly i can redo it in more detail 
later, but this dashed line, this is a, a, a shortcut representation of this huge spreadsheet that I have for the main royal bloodline of these people. And it appears to start where I, I told you around Gobekli Tepe, oddly enough. Wild. Um, but it, it has to do with the Old Testament. And it starts with the Amorites, who were, are mentioned in the Bible, that were Canaanites, uh, who were situated and controlled um, that area of northeast Turkey, southeast Syria. And it looks like they became the Hyksos pharaohs of Egypt. Uh, you've probably heard of them, Zach, but I don't know if every very many other people have. They were a group of Canaanites that took over the Nile Delta mm-hmm. in the oh, 1800s to 1500s BC. And they weren't very nice people, apparently. They ultimately got kicked out by upper the kingdom that still existed autonomously in Upper Egypt. Some people think that might be part of the Exodus story from the Old Testament. I personally think the evidence is pretty strong. Um, also note that this is an actual archaeological uh, artifact that was unearthed from the city of these Hyksos pharaohs in the Delta. Uh, and notice it's got the, the, stags. the deer head, yep. the stag head, the Y symbolism. So um, it's interesting that when they got kicked out of Egypt, and like I said, they're kind of believed to have ruled tyrannically as an occupying force in Egypt. They were Canaanites. They adopted Egyptian customs. And when they got kicked out was very coincidental in time with the Santorini eruption in the Mediterranean. Okay. So you get some of the aspects of the ten plagues in the Old Testament Exodus story Mm -hmm. that may have been a remembrance of some of the effects of the Santorini eruption. So these people uh, got exiled back to Canaan. They may have come back into Egypt and been the 18th through 22nd dynasties. So that means Akhenaten and Tutankhamun and these people may have been descended from the Hyksos. That's a very controversial thing. Um, A lot of people will be upset at me for saying it, but I didn't make it up. (laughs) I'm just trying to track these people. I I never understand when people get uh, emotionally connected to uh, researching history in this way. You know, I mean, like, uh, who are we to be so egotistical to believe that we have everything figured out when it's so obvious that what we're looking at here is, you know, quite clearly reinterpretations of uh, uh, of of different people's ideas. And uh, there's no such thing as. 100% certainty on any of this stuff. I mean, unless, you know, you, you can look at certain metrics to let you know. Like, it's quite obvious that things have not gone down in the way that we've been told. Yeah, but, you know, the Bible is, by a lot of people, they view it as 
pretty sacrosanct. Mm-hmm. And, no, absolutely. But, but the you know putting a historical framework on the events in the Old Testament is very difficult. Mm-hmm. And Ralph Ellis, as you've heard of him, I don't know how much of the stuff you've actually watched. I think he's done some brilliant detective work, basically saying, "Hey, these these patriarchs may have actually been Egyptian pharaohs." Mm-hmm. Unsettling for a lot of people, but I think his his research is pretty well founded. Um, and it gives us a connection to some of the more difficult aspects of what we're facing today, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I mean, you know, he, he thinks that they're the pharaohs of the 21st and 22nd dynasty were David and Solomon. And I think he makes a pretty good case uh, for it. I, I, I'll go into it more detail in another show if people want, but I'm okay. just trying to get through this where these people came from and so at some point these people left egypt and ended up in israel um but it's very murky as to how that happened although it probably happened around 800 bc the reason i have this line dashed here is because this is the part that i'm still working on it's pretty difficult it's very controversial but I think I find it fascinating and I still intend to try to actually do a family tree through there. I think there's enough information to, to attempt it anyway. So we get to the Babylonian exile and these people ended up in Babylon, Persia under Cyrus, the great Darius, Xerxes, all of those Persian Kings. Mm -hmm. That was the big empire of its day. That was the most powerful empire in the world as it, uh, of its day. And I'm working on, and I, I don't think I'm the only one that, that's thinking this. The story of Esther might be an indication that, that these people coming out of Egypt and Israel may have infiltrated the Persian royal lines. Okay. So from that point in time, um, I have this as a solid dashed line because I actually do have family tree going all the way forward from there. Okay. The Persians and then through Phrygia, which was a Turkish uh, kingdom that was under the control of Persia. Then to Syria, that's the Seleucid dynasty I mentioned earlier with the coins with the Ben-Ben stone thing on it. Mm-hmm. They were you know, this is about the time of Alexander the Great when he conquered the Persians. Well, his heirs became uh, different empires throughout that region. You had the Ptolemies in Egypt, the Seleucids in Syria, mm-hmm. things like that. So the bloodline goes through the Seleucids in the Middle East, then into Egypt, the Ptolemaic lines. It includes Cleopatra the Seventh. Mm-hmm. That is the Cleopatra. Yep, yep. Um, and then it goes to one of her kids married into uh, the royal bloodline of a client state of the Romans in North Africa, more more present day Mauritania. Mm-hmm. So this goes. I have another slide that carries this further all the way to today. So that's where these people may have came from. And the reason I can do this with the genealogical databases is these were the most powerful people on the planet. So they're the best documented people on the planet for their time. Otherwise, you couldn't do it. You know, uh, 
you, and it's, I didn't think this would be possible when I started it. I was just curious to see if any of these people could be somehow connected to pharaohs because I knew some of the Roman emperors styled themselves as pharaohs, but mm-hmm. it went much further than that. A little bit more symbolism. I uh, remember talking about the phoenix and mm-hmm. the Benben stone. Yep. Well, Anka Banka brought this to my attention one day, and I was blown away. This is the present-day coat of arms of Nigeria. <laughs> and remember who controlled Nigeria prior to 1960. It was the British. They were part of the British <clears throat> Empire. Yep. So the coat of arms of Nigeria not only has a Y staring you in the face, it has a literal phoenix perched on a Benben stone right on top. Okay. So this is all with us to the present day. Now notice, okay, what if the phoenix is supposed to be a falcon or an eagle? Yeah, it could also well, be. <laughs> they don't they don't have ears. Yes. This thing has ears. And if if and here's that earlier picture of the phoenix I showed, he yeah. has ears. Yeah. Or horns. What else has a horn? What else what else has horns? The stag. The owl. The owl, the well. owl too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the phoenix is is like a, a combination of these things. I'll show a slide on that in a minute. Okay. But here I have this is what a bald eagle looks like, golden eagle, even a peregrine falcon. No mm. horns on them. Nope. This is an actual coin from Syria, circa 200 AD. Now, this is during the Roman Empire. And this particular city-state of Emesa was a client kingdom of the Romans at this time. Um, I'll show more on them later. They became they're exceedingly important. But notice their symbolism: the phoenix on the Benben stone. Yes, it is. In the present day. This is the coat of arms of one of the most powerful families in England. Well, I, there's also a that, pyramid there. I think. <laughs> yeah, that that might be that might be the <laughs> the pyramidian or something. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't really know what to make of that, but I can certainly see that. Yeah. Um, one of the most powerful families in England today, uh, noble families, the present day earls of Arundel and and some other earlships they have are the Howard family. Makes you wonder about Ron Howard and his his family tree. But yeah. anyway, this is an old rendering from 1580. Someone drew in 1580 their coat of arms, and they put a chicken on top. What? A chicken? <laughs> well, do chickens have horns? <laughs> no. <laughs> that's a, I think that's the phoenix. And I also think that... A symbol on top of very top of the coat of arms might be a statement of who who is my lord. In other words, who does this family answer to? Mm-hmm. So this family answers to the phoenix, whoever that might be. Likewise, another family, the Stanley family, um, one of the absolute most powerful families in England. They're the earls of Derby or Derby, as we would say it. In fact, the Kentucky Derby mm-hmm. is named after them. <laughs> um, this is an old rendering from 1781 of their coat of arms. And what's on it? The Phoenix again. 
Yeah. And they, 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 both, answer to. they both also have uh, uh, the, well, on, on the uh, Howard, looks like you've got a hound with w- what would appear to be uh, stag horns. And then on uh, the Derby, you've got the, uh, the stag head as well as a yeah. stag, a living stag. Yeah. The, the, it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, real quick before you continue, let me say thank you to Blurticus who says, I love this shiz. And Tipster says, any theories on Ancestry.com or the likes? Is there a search going? Is any of this public on any of these sites or are people just using the sites for general reference? The way those sites work, as I understand it, is that anybody can create an account and enter um, genealogy information that they found out on it. Some of these sites have moderators that then QC oh, yeah. uh, this stuff because it kind of has to be. So some of these sites are really freaking messy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like to go to those, but sometimes you have to check. Um, there's a couple of websites that I rely on the most. One of them is called genie.com. Okay. G-E-N-I.com. Um, that one has moderators. From what I can tell, they do a pretty good job of QCing what's in there, validating what's in there. Sure. Um, another one is Genianet. Now, there are some researchers. A guy that has inspired me a lot is a, a guy named Miles Mathis. I've heard He's of him. not yeah. terribly well known. He, he doesn't do Twitter and all that stuff. But he has his own website, and he publishes some really interesting papers. I don't agree with him on a lot of stuff, but I think the the genealogy stuff he does is extremely useful. And he basically gave me the, the courage, essentially, to do some things that I, I didn't think I could or should do, <laughs> put it that way. Um, is, what What is the Phoenix – perched upon is that is that a pile of bones or is that like a roman temple uh well no yes in, in the stanley hard, hard to tell i've yeah. blown this up a lot just to get this much resolution on it and yeah. i don't really know okay because I mean, it, it almost looks like a roman forum or something which it could be because yeah you're gonna see these guys are connected to the romans too that was well the first thing i thought was a forum but then at the tip here that almost looks like a skull like maybe like a bird skull directly underneath the the head of the phoenix Ooh, I, yeah, I, I'll take your word for it. Okay, all right, all <laughs> I, I right. Don't, I don't I'm on a pretty big monitor, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually only have one screen, so I can't look at chat or anything while ah, I'm presenting. Okay, I'm I'm total ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one more thing before I leave this slide: um, before Nigeria adopted this coat of arms in 1975, when it was a colony of Britain, look at what it's. Star of David, was. yeah. That, where are the creepy. where are the uh, the um, uh, the Jewish tribes in Africa? Is uh, I mean, are they known to be in Nigeria? Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, because I, I don't I think it's know Ethiopia I, I can, that I know of. I can tell you a kind of a dig like that that Anka Vanka did. Uh, it was interesting, but I didn't know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. She found some symbolism in some African tribes in West Africa. Okay. That was kind of reminiscent of some of this Egyptian stuff that, that I was digging up. And 
I, I certainly agreed that it was reminiscent. I, I, I'm forgetting. I think she might have found some uh, potential Phoenix stuff or Ben Ben stuff or something like that. And I was thinking, ooh, maybe the Phoenicians did make it down to West Africa and being tied in with the Egyptians, maybe they influenced some of these West African tribes. Um, there, there are historical stories of at least one Phoenician admiral. Um, God, what was his name? Some variant of Hannibal, but it wasn't the Hannibal we know from history, even though he was a Phoenician. Uh, they came from Carthage um, that did make it to West Africa in about 500 BC. So it's possible there could have been an influence that way. But in looking up the history of those African tribes that Ankavanka spotted, most of the research seems to point that they migrated from close to Egypt, but over land to get to West Africa. So okay. it's really confusing. I, okay. I, I haven't resolved any of that yet, but it's an interesting topic, no doubt. Because I think via the Phoenicians, the Egyptian influence went a lot of places that we never imagined before. I mean, the, the very simple one is, how the hell did pyramids get to the New World? in a thousand BC or whatever. Right. How, how did that happen? So without getting all, you know, ancient astronaut theory and stuff, <laughs> the, I just think that, that the Phoenicians were probably far more influential than we ever imagined in the ancient world. Okay. A little bit on the Phoenix. So here we have, uh, an Egyptian, you know, a cartoon rendering of the pharaoh as Horus with Ra over his head, the sun god. So mm -hmm. he's a, a sun deity, essentially. That's a very important part of this, sun worship. Mm -hmm. You've probably seen some of the digs looking at things oh, yeah. like the Viking runes that make up the Nazi SS symbol being... Mm. Uh, some a, a rune of of the sun, yep. essentially. So sun worship is a big part of all of this. So if you kind of combine that, you know, Horus the the raptor with the owl MLK, you get the horns of the phoenix. Mm -hmm. The phoenix is a sun deity or a fire deity, certainly. Notice the halo yep. on yep. its head, but also. Look at what I also found. This is a statue from 1250 BC of the Egyptian god Set. Remember I talked yep. about him earlier in the Osiris myth. Everybody remembers Osiris's penis and obelisk and all that stuff. That all came from that myth where he Set killed his brother Osiris. Mm -hmm. This is Set. Not only does his head look like a Y shape. He's but look at what owl. is perched on his head. There's an owl. <laughs> it's an owl. Wow. So anyway, I think the combination of Horus, the sun deity, and adding in a little owl from Set, perhaps, and you end up with the phoenix. You know, just combine those attributes. Fascinating. Well, then a little later, you take the phoenix... And add a little snake to it, which and is also probably set because that's where Satan comes from. Probably, I was just—I was going to say that earlier, but I, I, we didn't get to it. But 
uh, you know, and also this snake is the exact same representation as what we see in that coat of arms up there. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This this actual picture comes from their house. This okay. is on the side of their house. Um, but anyway, you add the snake to the phoenix. Yep. And now you have all the attributes of the dragon. The dragon. Vlad Dracul, the dragon. Yes. Yep. That's right. So I, I have a couple slides where I go over more about the snake symbolism. It's a little different than other people have done in the past, but it ties into this in a general sense. Um, okay, here's... No, continue, uh, continue. I was just... Uh, d- I don't want to... Uh, you're on a roll. Go ahead. Okay, so this is the money slide, essentially. Okay. Um, this one, when I normally present it, it takes an hour. <laughs> um this is the literal bloodline of the family from that coat of arms, this coat of arms with the three deer heads. So we left off on the other part of this bloodline graph, Mauritania. So Cleopatra's daughter had married the king of Mauritania. Their offspring married into another daughter, I think. It was a daughter? Yeah, I think it was a daughter. Married into the royal family of Emesa, that Roman client kingdom I talked about before, that had that coin with the phoenix and the Benben stone on it, right? Do you mm-hmm. remember that from a few minutes ago? Yeah. That family, they were the high priests of the sun worship temple in Syria. An object that they worshipped was a literal Benben stone, mm-hmm. which is believed to be a meteorite. Have you heard of this before? I have actually, and uh, this kind of ties into um, Islam too. Isn't Mecca? Isn't isn't there yeah. that that uh, whatever it is? You yeah. know, it's a giant cube, but there's a meteorite in it. Yeah, and there's a story behind this stone that might be the most interesting Indiana Jones story there ever was. <laughs> because if this stone could be found, mm-hmm. and there's clues out there, I've made a little progress on it. Um, if this stone could be found, it would probably be the most valuable object on the planet. Wow. <laughs> because Ralph Ellis thinks that this stone was actually what was inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... <laughs> Total mind blower. Yeah. Also, he he also interprets this stone along with the bloodline as being the literal Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. And now we've heard about the bloodline as being the Holy Grail, and that yeah. makes perfect sense. And I would say all of my work supports that too. But he kind of adds on this black stone as being a part of it too because it's the symbol of this ancient family because this stone is believed to originally – come from egypt going god knows how far back and it was worshipped in egypt in a city called heliopolis okay which heliopolis is city of the sun right Mm -hmm. that's what it translates to so there was a large influence of this stone on subsequent egyptian worship of the sun ra so anyway, this family in Emesa in Syria, they were very close to Phoenicia, um, was very powerful, but they were a Roman client kingdom. Their family, not only were they the, the kings of this kingdom, 
they were the priest kings. So they were, you know, godlike figures, kind of like the pharaoh, because the pharaoh was a god on earth. Mm-hmm. So from that family in Emesa, we get a Roman emperor. This Roman emperor, Septimius Severus, in about 100 and something A.D., uh, 200 and something A.D., sorry. He was from Carthage, which was a Phoenician city. I haven't talked much about Carthage, but it was the later stage of the Phoenician Empire was in Carthage, which is in North Africa near Sicily. His family, now the Romans conquered Carthage in like 150 BC and basically supposedly wiped them out. Well, they didn't really wipe them out because Septimius Severus was descended from local a local Carthaginian family. So he was a Phoenician. He became emperor of Rome, sole emperor, and he married a woman from this family in Syria from the city of Emesa, this whole black rock worshiping priest family. Um, they had their own dynasty as emperors of Rome for a while. Um, one of their famous offspring who was a later emperor was this goofball named Elagabalus. Mm-hmm. Um, he's pretty famous if you studied Roman history because he was a complete oddball. He was a young kid when he became emperor. He's like 14 years old or something. But he's also the high priest of that weird rock-worshipping sun temple. And then he became emperor, and he took that rock to Rome and tried to force the Romans to worship it. And they didn't, they didn't like that, so they had him murdered and shipped that rock back to Syria, apparently. <laughs> um, and here's where it really starts to get big league um the only indication of what constantine's ancestry might be points to this family but it's disputed but i think you know that that disputed part of it they say oh the source this came from which is called the historia augusta which was written right around the time of constantine but modern historians have tried to discredit a lot of it. They say, oh, Constantine just made up his bloodline to connect with these earlier emperors. But it's the only way to go. And I actually found some other sources that may corroborate that that's where Constantine's family came from. And it makes a lot of sense because it appears that this members of this Syrian family migrated up to the air, the Roman frontier area of the Danube, like modern-day Serbia, Croatia. Mm-hmm. That was a big military stronghold for the Roman Empire. They were enforcing the eastern boundary of the empire from there. And that's where Constantine came from, was from that area. So I think there's there's evidence that suggests that Constantine was a member of this Severan family from Syria, this pagan sun-worshipping family. And if you looked at Constantine, it's very debatable whether he actually really was a Christian at all. Mm-hmm. Um, he may have supported Christianity and encouraged it, but in his life, 
he often represented himself as Saul Invictus, mm-hmm. which was a Roman sun god. Yep. The god on earth, the phoenix, Baal, all of that. Same kind of thing. So I don't find it. It's really the only way you can go with Constantine. Otherwise, it's a complete dead end. Mm-hmm. And, but there's, you know, circumstantial evidence that suggests he very well could have been a member of that family. So next step in the chain is his nephew, Emperor Julian, otherwise known as Julian the Apostate. You've probably heard about him. Mm-hmm. I have a very strange story to tell at a later date about why I started looking into him in earnest. But there's a case. You know, history records that his his three children didn't survive uh infancy. They want the first one was supposedly died from a botched uh midwife tying the umbilical cord kind of thing. Mm. Well, this guy was a Caesar. You really think he had a sloppy midwife? <laughs> I don't know. Well, okay, that's one instance. Second instance, the second kid, the story goes, uh, his wife made a trip. His wife was up with him in Gaul. That's modern-day Germany and France. Mm-hmm. His job as Caesar, he wasn't the top dog yet, was to defend the Rhine boundary, the Rhine River boundary of the Roman Empire. And he was quite successful at it. His wife went with him. His wife was Constantine's daughter. So not only was he Constantine's nephew, but his wife was her Constantine's daughter. So, again, we're talking some serious inbreeding, pharaonic stuff going on, even at this later date. So his wife made a trip down to Rome, and supposedly the top dog emperor, Constantius, one of Constantine's sons, her her brother, his wife, the empress, supposedly poisoned her so that she had a miscarriage. Why? They say because his wife, the empress Eusebia, didn't want Julian's side of the family to be successful in the Roman political world. Okay, yeah, that stuff happens. But here's the rub. Julian's right Julian was a scholar and his writings survived to this day and in all of his writings he talks very glowingly about Empress Eusebia they weren't enemies at all so I think and I have found some evidence to back it up Julian's kids were raised in Gaul and not recorded in history mm. and they became the Merovingian kings. Mm. Their offspring became the Merovingian king. And I have the family tree to show it. Okay. So that blows the Da Vinci Code out of the water. Yes. The Merovingians were descendants of Constantine. It kind of makes sense when you think about it in a realistic way. Another thing that corroborates that as being a possibility, again, an infiltration, right? Mm Mm-hmm. The Roman Empire was very, very expensive to maintain from the barbarian incursions, and they may have thought, well, if we just infiltrated the the royal 
lines of the barbarians yeah now we can control it so That's, that makes sense makes me wonder if the fall of the western roman empire might have been engineered by these people so here's another one that really made my hair stand up on end when i found it the little kingdom of wales up in england you know they were very roman that's where the britons ended up the b-r-i-t-o-n-s of king arthur fame and all of that Mm -hmm. they were very roman and somebody up there in wales is doing an absolutely magnificent job with the genealogies up there. There are extensive genealogies of the kings of the various little kingdoms in Wales. Well, a family tree was found in a in a monastery or something that date back dates back to 900 AD, where one of the queens of a Welsh kingdom had her ancestry documented. And at the top of her family tree, to make a long story short, her her and the other kings of Wales, their ancestry goes back to Constantine also through one of Constantine's sons, who was a later emperor, Constans I. He made a mysterious trip up to England that is recorded historically, but nobody knows why he was there. This is like when he was 21 and his father was the head emperor. He just made this trip up to England. Um, and this genealogy says, yeah, and he, he, he got it on with a local princess and the Welsh royal lines came from that. And wow. not just him, his grand uncle, Constantine's cousin, who was an emperor of his himself, Maxentius, apparently did the same thing, according to that genealogy. Wow. So we have Constantine's family infiltrating the royal lines in Gaul, France and Germany on the one side, on the continent, but also up in Britain. Same family bloodline. So there was sort of a parallel thing going on and even in the king arthur myths they talk about the red and the white dragon battling mm-hmm. out when arthur was fighting the saxons well it turns out the merovingians infiltrated the saxon royal lines at one point so it was the two dragons battling it out the and this is weird that these legends all of a sudden come into focus right like mm-hmm. king arthur and stuff yeah the white dragon being Constantine's bloodline on the continent, the red dragon being the Welsh bloodline of Constantine's offspring up in England. And so we had this sort of parallel thing going on until the War of the Roses. Mm-hmm. The Ro- War of the Roses, the red rose and the white rose. Mm-hmm. Look, at <clears throat> we're dealing with red and white yeah. yet again in this symbolism. Apparently, that's where the two bloodlines kind of healed themselves and met. And that was when we got King Henry VII and Henry VIII at the end of the War of the Roses. Wow. But to, to back up on the bloodline, so so we have Julian's side of the family becoming the Merovingian king. So you have Clovis. And then the Merovingian kings got, you know, there's a bunch of them we've heard of. They got kind of sloppy 
and they got taken over by the Carolingian kings. That's the family of Charlemagne. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at the genealogy, the Carolingians were just Merovingians by another name. They yeah. were all related. So it wasn't like anything huge happened. It's just like these guys got lazy. So this other branch of the family decided to take over. Right. And they got the permission of the Pope to take over. And that's how Charlemagne became the first Holy Roman Empire, Emperor in mm. 800 AD. Yeah. Follow his bloodline down through the Holy Roman Emperors and... One of their offspring um, was the wife of Rollo the Viking. Mm-hmm. Now, the Vikings invaded Norman. Well, they invaded France, and they became such a pain in the ass to the Holy Roman Emperor that one of the Viking leaders, Rollo, made a deal with the Holy Roman Emperor saying, we'll take this chunk of northern France on the coast and defend Germany, the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire, from the other Vikings that are sacking the cities on the coast. That's where the Normans came from. So they were a mixture of Viking and French. Okay. William the Conqueror was a great, great, great grandson of Rollo. His illegitimate, and took me a year to track this down because his family that I'm ultimately tracking the present day family, they claim that their ancestry goes all the way back to William the Conqueror. Okay. They, they claim, you know, we're Royal blood going back to William the Conqueror, but the best they can do is say that they're a close cousin of William the Conquerors. And they participated in the invasion of Normandy as cousins or whatever. I, I actually think I found what their relationship, William the Conqueror's mother was the cousin sorry uh i gotta back up robert gernon this guy I mentioned here he's the farthest back ancestor that this family can trace and they say he was a cousin of william the conqueror okay i found pretty good evidence that his mother was a first cousin of william the conqueror but the reason it was so hard to find is that she was illegitimate uh but it's a it's a bigger story than that. It's really interesting, but I won't go into the detail on that. Okay. So this family descends from William the Conqueror, which again goes all the way back through Charlemagne and Constantine and Egypt and all that stuff I showed you before. And now we're getting to the Middle Ages. The first real member of this Gernon family, Gernon is French for mustache, so they probably were known for their mustaches. <laughs> Um, was a fellow named John Cavendish. He was the chief justice of England. So he's kind of like the equivalent of John Roberts. He worked for the king. Yep. So the head lawyer guy. He was beheaded in the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. So you can kind of get an idea of why these people might hate the peasants, right? Yes, yes. (laughs) So... (laughs) So if you carry on his line through the 1300s, the end of the War of the Roses here where these two lines came together with the Tudor kings, Henry VIII and all of that, mm-hmm. um, you end up with the first William Cavendish. They changed this line of the branch of the family, changed their last name to Cavendish. Because that was the name of a big property that they acquired through a marriage. Okay. 
Um, so they're no longer Gurnans. You've probably heard this name Cavendish before. Certainly. Um, they're pretty prevalent in modern society if you go looking, and I've got some pretty interesting parts to show you. Well, this this William Cavendish um, became exceedingly wealthy. He was the treasurer of Henry VIII, and when the, the Lord Treasurer, they called him, when Henry VIII booted the Catholic Church out of England, they sacked all the monasteries and took everything. So all the treasure of the Catholic Church became the loot of Henry VIII and his closest buddies. And this guy, William Cavendish, got a lot. Wow. Um, his, his widow, he died in the mid-1500s. His widow lived quite a bit longer than that. Uh, in her later life, she was described as the second wealthiest woman in England after the queen, mm. who would have been Queen Elizabeth I at that time, the late 1500s. One of her sons was probably the initial and largest, well, one of the initial investors and probably largest shareholder in the East India Company. And there it is. <laughs> he also invested in the Virginia Company. Mm-hmm. which was supposed to be a failed endeavor, endeavor, but who knows. But he invested in all of these overseas companies that Britain was churning out at that time, the main one being the British East India Company. Mm-hmm. He also hired a fellow named Thomas Hobbes, who is a pretty well-known philosopher, although he's not taught in school anymore. Uh to tutor his kids and write philosophical treatises. And I will talk about him in depth later too, because I think his writings are basically the philosophical blueprint of the new world order. Mm. So remember this guy, uh, the, he was the first Earl of Devonshire was the, probably the largest initial investor in the East India company, but he was also, the career maker for this philosopher, Thomas Hobbes. Incidentally, he bought his earlship for 10,000 pounds. This is in 1618 dollars. You can imagine what that would be now. Yeah. (laughs) So then the, the line of earls and dukes that descended from him, I, they were probably the big dogs in the East India company. And more importantly, the big dogs in the city of London, mm-hmm. not London, the city we normally think of, but the square mile, the city of London financial center. Mm-hmm. Remember, this was almost a hundred years before the bank of England came into existence. And I, I, I do a whole show on this aspect of how <laughs> the East India company in the city of London is where fascism really came from. Probably. <laughs> So another key event was his this first earl, his great grandson, I think it was, uh, who was the fourth earl, became the first duke. He was awarded the duke title because he was instrumental in bringing William and Mary over to England 
to be the king and queen, kicking the Catholic Stuart kings out of England. And the city of London has not been a part of the United Kingdom since that day. Mm-hmm. That That is a story in and of its own. But anyway, the point being that this family was, we don't hear about them much. They've been massively influential in the modern world. Very easily could be by far the wealthiest people in the world. Just to, Just imagine being the major stakeholder in the East India Company, which basically raped India and a lot of Asia. Yep. And then in later years, parlaying that money into the corporate world. What would that be worth now? As it's King Charles would say, trillions. Yeah. Remember, this is this is 200 years before the Rothschilds were even on the map. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whew, big slide. Oh, yeah. one last thing. The current duke is the 12th duke. His first name is Peregrine. Oh, kind of like Peregrine took in Lord of the Rings and all mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. But what else is Peregrine? The Falcon. That's right. <laughs> in particular, Horus is believed to be a Peregrine Falcon. Yes. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that crazy? Oh, man. All right. Uh, we can kind of end it on that, I think. I think if, that's a good if, place if time to do is it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, um, so I'm going to talk a, a lot more about this Cavendish family. We've now seen their bloodline. Um, I've got a massive spreadsheet that has every single member of this bloodline on it. Wow. I'll give you a quick look at what part of it looks like. Oh, wow. This is just a small part of it. This is the part where uh, Julian the Apostate's kids might actually be the progenitors of the Merovingian kings. Wow. And you've got that right. uh, the black sun right there, too, I see. Yeah, I put yeah. that on there for kind of an odd reason. I do have a slide where I talk about the Black Sun. The Black Sun, there are some some archaeologically some ornaments were found in mm-hmm. Austria that date back to the time of the Merovingians that are this Black Sun. So they're kind of they're kind of called the Merovingian discs. Okay. But I saw an interesting theory some some Somebody on Pilled sent me a video to look at one day, and it had a lot to do with symbolism. And they broached the idea that the black sun could be, in this video they did, could be a representation of the infiltration. Imagine starting at the in the center with, say, Constantine or somebody and his sons radiating out Absolutely. and infiltrating all yeah. these other civilizations, which is kind of a – a novel way of looking at it, which I found interesting, and that's why I stuck it on the slide. Certainly. Ah, I like it. All right. Uh, real quick over here on Rumble, Tibster says, what is your favorite historical film? Wow. It's that's a difficult an, question. I was th- trying to yeah. think myself, and I don't know that I can at this moment. <laughs> I would have to say Braveheart, even though it's uh, not terribly historically accurate. It yeah. was just a damn good story. It certainly is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And for me, I would have to actually consider that because there is uh, uh, there, there, I don't, there's so many that I would have to consider. So I, I will get back to you on that one. But um, <laughs> all uh, right. Heading over to Pilled. Uh, let me see. Um, Sean Joe and Porpoiseful. Thank you. Average Joe Patriot. Thank you once more. Filter Dog one. 
Uh, Mr. McBaster, both dropping cans. Thank you. Uh, Gambera, thank you for the phone. Ohio Kimmy dropped a cookie, as did Average Joe Patriot. Porpoiseful, thank you. Filter Dog One, thank you. Uh, Belushi says cookie fight, thank you. And Average Joe Patriot. J2 Dank dropping a can. Sean Joe, thank you for the can. Rasta says it's also good to go back and listen to the Duppy shows again. Great work. Yeah, I would imagine uh, this is the kind of stuff that you would probably pick up on new information every time you're listening. New new connections that can be made. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Uh, It's very, very complicated and very, very deep. Absolutely. Uh, Sean Joe, thank you for the cookie. Filter Dog One says, thank you for bringing Duppy to share with your audience. We will need another dose. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Sean Joe and Average Joe Patriot, thank you again, boys. Filter Dog One, so the Israelites would have known Ball from Egypt. Filter Dog um, asks. That's a real good question. I sort of addressed it, but it is confusing. Mm-hmm. Remember, those Hyksos kings originally came from Canaan, and they invaded the delta mm-hmm. of, of Egypt and became pharaohs themselves. Yep. So that whole mix of Canaanite culture and Egyptian culture occurred there. So the equivalence of Baal and Horus, Baal and the pharaoh, yeah, you can see where that might have come from. Absolutely. Uh, and then Filter Dog also says David was a shepherd king. And, oh, yeah. Yep. The Hyksos were no. I, I forgot to mention that. The Hyksos were known. Um, Manetho, an ancient Egyptian historian who was in, from the time of the Ptolemies, and Flavius Josephus, who is the sort of preeminent Jewish historian, uh, both call the Hyksos. The Shepherd Kings. Interesting. <clears throat> uh, Nakaz808 says, I'll have to watch the whole show from the start. Great content. Absolutely. Uh, Filter Dog says, does Mace and Medic Symbol have any connection? Uh, I mean, I, I would you know, immediately Ooh. say most likely, you know. Yeah, there's pro- there's probably something there. I, I haven't looked in. I've kind of stayed away from the medical aspect because other people have done that one. Mm-hmm. Pretty in depth. Um, I think there's something there. It goes, you know, it goes back to Moses' staff too. Remember when he put a snake on it or yep, yep. turned it? I think another <clears throat> time he turned it into a snake. Yep. Um, yeah, there's got to be connections there. I just haven't had the need to go in that direction. You've got your hands full as it is. Oh, yeah. Um, Filter Dog, thank you for dropping another can. He also says Christmas tree evergreen. Uh, yep. Yes, and that is a, that's what we mentioned earlier. Uh, Uncensored Abe, good to see you, buddy. Got dropping some shades. Filter Dog One says, "Could the Hicksotes be Israelites?" And I think that's uh, kind of what you were implying. According to yeah. Ralph Ellis, his reading of Flavius Josephus, he essentially says that, mm-hmm. and the powers that be don't want you to know that. Yes. Yes. Uh, Filter Dog, Dragons, Casey, thank you for the phone. Filter Dog says, bring Duppy back. This is wild. Don't worry, he will. Uh, <laughs> Uncensored Apes says, great work, Duppy. Uh, Sean Joe dropped a cookie. Filter Dog one, the snake is Infinity, 8-coon, and so many others. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I was thinking that when uh, when it was on screen. Uh, Porpoiseful dropped a cookie. Filter Dog one says, the Ark of the Covenant contained the Umin and Thumin not described in Scripture. 
I'm not familiar with those terms. Are you? No, I'm not. That's the first time I've heard it. But uh, yeah. fil- Filter Dog, if you want to send anything over to both of us, I'll definitely take a look. Uh, yeah, I'd be curious as to where that came from. Yeah. Uh, Sean Joe dropped a cookie. Filter Dog 1 says 10K. We must have hit 10K. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, J2 Dank, thank you for the cookie. Filter Dog 1 says thank you for the overtime RP. Just difficult to stop on a roll. Yeah, absolutely. I, I knew that we were probably going to go over, and I'm glad that we did. And then Pacific Northwest Sasquatch uh, dropped some shades and said interesting stuff. And then also MAGA1 over on Rumble said support. So thank you very, very much for that support. I sincerely appreciate it. Um, Duppy, uh, I want to remind everybody that your work is only available at pilled.net. That's not entirely true. Oh, real well, I'm still yeah. trying to push people over onto pilled. Let me uh, just say well, this. Well, I can, agree. Send can, them over to pilled because that's the only way you can contact me. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so you, his work is primarily at pilled.net forward slash duppy. His link has been scrolling on the screen throughout the show. I've also dropped it into the chats, and uh, you'll also find it in the description on the Rumble video. The uh, formatting on Pilled is just a little bit different, but you can click his at, and that will take you right to him. Uh, so, Debbie, yeah, Anka, Anka Banka has all of the shows up to the, except for the last two, uh, archived on her Rumble channel. Oh, that's on... where my links point to. Oh, great. Okay. All right. Well, that's great to know. Uh, and then besides that, thank you for being here. And obviously, after we uh, complete the show, we'll figure out another date for you to return. But do you have any final thoughts in terms of uh, tonight's presentation? Um. Well, I, I hope you guys enjoyed it. It's it's a wild ride, and it's going to get wilder for the next segment. <laughs> That's about all I can say. It's um, It's been a fascinating ride, and I, I really hope that something like this, it's not all going to be right. It's, it's too difficult a problem to unravel. Yeah. But I hope it in some way contributes to us figuring out who the real enemy is. That's been my goal all along. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, the the wonderful thing about research and the way that we do it, it's collaborative. And uh, I, I always hope that even if something isn't uh, an accurate connection, it will help people to come to some greater sense of accuracy and, and maybe make you think about things in a slightly different way. Because too often people, are, they, they get monolithic in their thinking and they find it difficult yeah. to step outside and- of that which they already believe to be true. I've got an interesting example of how the community might be converging uh, with regards to this material, but I'm sure it's happening in others as well. You've heard of the Prussiagate series that Ab- Patrick reads on his show. Absolutely. I've kept, I- I've kept up with some of that. It's kind of a competing theory to this. Okay. Um, but I've noticed that the ones that I've read, I've, I think I've read about a half a dozen of them. No, more than that, maybe 10. They point to England a lot, which is where I'm heading. Right. The, the Prussiagate guys don't want to concede that maybe the head of the snakes in England. And, and of course, the Prussian nobility were tied into these guys, too. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that uh, this could totally be complimentary if you think about it yeah. in the same way. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. They just they just really push the Prussia aspect of it hard. Why it's funny because you can see their their lines of thinking 
heading towards England and then they like pull it back to Prussia and stuff like that. It's kind of funny to watch. Well, I, I mean, if you're looking at just uh, like a slice of, of history, you know, I mean, just a, an aspect of the timeline, I mean, they, they very likely could be right on. But if you just go a little bit beyond it, then I think that's yeah, where your I, work I comes agree. In. I think yeah. I think they are complimentary. Yeah, yeah. All right. And then <clears throat> Coyote Patriot wants to know when will part two be aired? Well, we haven't decided that yet. So in order to find out, you're going to have to follow me and you're going to have to follow Duppy. So if you're not subscribed already, uh, you can obviously find all of my work on my Rumble channel. Uh, you can go to rumble.com forward slash redpill78 or you can search uh, Red Pill News, and I'm sure it'll take you to the channel. Also, over here on the foxhole at pilled.net at redpill78. The same for Truth, Twitter, Gab, and Getter. All of those, I am at redpill78. And then, of course, my Telegram, which will be the official redpill78 channel. Also on there, I and Lisa post uh, some stuff from behind the scenes here, like our, our homesteading and stuff, stuff like that. We are going to uh, close out the show by listening to the classic song, <laughs> Istanbul was Constantinople. But before we do that, I have to give some final shout outs to the last sponsors of tonight's program. And let me just get that pulled up on screen for everyone. Let me remind you about my friends at Oneness Drops. Dot com where you can pick up your chlorine dioxide water purification kits. And when you use code REDPILL78, or is it RP78? Hold on, I need to, I think it's just RP78. When you use code RP78, that's it. You get 15% off every single order. If you are unfamiliar with chlorine dioxide, it is uh, quite literally a miracle substance known as the universal antidote because it has the power to kill a ton of different pathogens and toxins and make uh, unclean water totally potable. That means safe to drink. So onenessdrops.com, pick up some chlorine dioxide water purification kits for your go bag, for your medicine cabinet, uh, for your hurricane survival kit, whatever it might be. It's definitely something you're going to want to have on hand. And then also my friends at My Patriot Supply, you can find that by going to preparewithredpill78.com. Right now, you can save $200 off a three-month supply of emergency food. These are delicious, nutritious meals, over 21 varieties of food with a 25-year shelf life, all of them providing over 2,000 calories a day. Uh, this would be over 120 pounds of food that you can keep on hand just in case the ish does hit the fan because uh, I truly believe we are heading towards uh, something uh, unsettling in the near future. And so I'm all set, got this uh, uh, enough food for Lisa and I for one to two years. Uh, and so I suggest you guys have emergency food on hand as well. Uh, also, my good friend Mike Lindell at MyPillow.com. You can also use code RP78 there to save up to 80% off all of Mike's incredible products, whether it's the MyPillow, MyPillow 2.0, the Giza Dream Sheets that were mentioned in the chat earlier, the mattress topper, or even the mattresses themselves, and of course the towels and the beach towels. All of that stuff is great products. It's all made in America. And when you support Mike Lindell, you're also supporting Red Pill 78. So thank you very much to everybody. And uh, one final thank you to my friends at c60evo.com forward slash 
Red Pill 78, uh, where you can pick up your C60 Evo products. If you have not yet, see the interview that I did with them just this past month. Uh, they have some incredible benefits that you can get from using these products, and they have a whole bunch of different specials for you. Also, when you use code RP78, you can save uh, bigly 10% off your orders. So, Duppy, thank you once more for being here with us tonight. Uh, I, Like I said, we're going to close out by listening to Istanbul was Constantinople. And let me just get that pulled up on screen for you guys. And uh, here we go. and over time keep an eye out on the channel because we will be announcing the next portion of this program very shortly thank you everybody for the support i sincerely appreciate it we will see you tomorrow night at 9 p.m eastern good luck and god bless